0: And here comes a fan out of the crowd. There's a fan coming off the front row of the crowd going after Don Carson. A fan has jumped into the ring after Don Carson. The stopper has got him. Oh, boy, I've never seen nothing like this. A fan couldn't take it anymore. He was sitting here on the front row, and all of a sudden, he jumped up into the ring, and the Mongolian stopper and Don Carson are going after him.
1: He's known by many names, the Stomper, the Masked Bounty Hunter, the Midnight Stallion, the Mongolian Stomper. With a gaze that would send chills up and down your spine, and a vocabulary that would cut a grown man to pieces. Join us this month on Grappling with Canada as we look at the greatest heel in wrestling history, Archie Goldie. Hello everyone, and welcome back, welcome back, welcome back, to another episode of Grappling with Canada. As usual, I'm your host, The Taxman. And I'm very excited because this month's episode is finally the last month of me having to confab my podcasting space uh, together. So... If, for, if this is your first time joining the program for the last few months, unfortunately due to uh, us renovating our basement for various reasons, uh, I've been kind of all over the map uh, trying to record these programs. Uh, I would highly suggest if this is your first time, you can go back in the archives and uh, enjoy all of the podcasting hijinks that I've enjoyed over the last uh, couple of months. But for everybody else thanks for sticking with us. Uh, It it really means a lot to me. And uh, when you hear the next episode, November 1st, I will be fully encased, not in carbonite, but in a new podcasting uh, area. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And I'm very much looking forward to that. But more specifically, I'm really looking forward to today's episode because we are going to be taking a deep, intense, and long look at in my opinion, the greatest wrestling heel, not just in Canadian professional wrestling history, but professional wrestling history around the world, point blank, period. Uh, it's my intention that after this program, you will maybe not agree, but maybe see my point of view on the subject, if you will. So, before we get into all of that, and by the way, I have three tremendous guests that i cannot wait for you guys to hear on this program i know that i always have incredible guests every month in this program this month is no different and i'm really really looking forward to you guys getting exposed to them later notice how i didn't say i'm looking forward to you being exposed to them later ah a little on words there but anyways <laughs> Like I said, I'm looking forward to that, but a little bit of housekeeping before we kick off today's episode. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the program. Uh, you can find Grappling with Canada on all major podcasting platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, we're on there as well now, uh, Good Pods, anywhere that you really buy, sell, trade, barter your favorite podcasts, you will find us. I would strongly suggest, wink wink nudge nudge, that you hit the subscribe button, or if you're on a podcasting platform such as Spotify, that you hit the bell for your notifications. Also, if you are on your favorite podcasting platform of choice, and you have the option to leave a five-star rating and review, please go ahead and do that. (laughs) In addition to that, if you would be so kind to leave a five-star review, if you could leave an actual review of what you like to the program. It would help immensely. There are, there have been and I have received a plethora of emails which I really really appreciate from many people uh, talking about what they enjoy about the program. And I do appreciate that. All feedback helps me kind of not curate but tinker the program a little bit to give you guys a little bit more of what you really enjoy hearing. So the more feedback I get the better of a program I can uh, release on the first of every month to everybody listening. Conversely to that, if there's something that you uh, would like change or whatever, I uh, don't leave me a, fi- a one-star review, but feel free to leave constructive criticism because, like I said, it helps me with the direction of the show. I'm not saying I'm going to change everything because I got a one-star review. Clearly, that's not happening because it didn't happen on the Earthquake John Tenta episode, for example, but Every little bit helps to help me uh, shape the future of the show, if you will. Also, if this is your first first time joining us, listen to me talk. A great introduction, if you will. <laughs> uh, you can also find us on Twitter, at 6 underscore podcast. On YouTube, you can search youtube.com slash C slash 6-Sided Podcast. Of note on there... The podcast is always a late getting onto YouTube, so don't don't you know cut me off real quick. Uh, everything shows up there eventually. I just have lots of things going on in the background, so I'm not often able to get these programs up right away on YouTube. But I would still like for your subscription on there, anyways. As we march our way to a thousand subscribers, also come in and join the uh, Facebook group, uh, grappling with Canada. Just use that wonderful. Facebook group search bar. Search Grappling with Canada. Come join the group. And also make sure that you like the Grappling with Canada page. Uh, Once again, use the pages search bar on uh, that wonderful Facebook app. I know everybody loves Facebook. Yay. (laughs) And uh, make sure that you like the Grappling with Canada page. I'm very excited to finally announce that T-Shirt Gate Is over, if you will. We finally have t-shirts available for purchase. So you can either find the links on Twitter or on the Facebook groups page or you can type on your wonderful Google machine or whatever browser you use grapplingwithcanada.threadless.com You're gonna find the grappling with Canada store. There are four designs on there. Uh, The original uh, grappling with Canada podcast logo there's an alternate on there and I have two fun variations based on the old Karachi Vice logo uh, people who would have heard last month's episode you know exactly what I'm talking about so grappling dot threadless dot com is where you can find those and like I said all the links will be available on our Twitter page, on the Facebook groups, and also on our Instagram page. Simply search Grappling with Canada on Instagram. Of note, I'm not going to cut the entire promo about what happened with the t shirt uh, fiasco, if you will, although I'm going to tell you in a second where you can hear that exact kind of promo. However, like I had mentioned previously on other months, uh, all t-shirt sale proceeds are going to be donated to the Children's Hospital here in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So any t-shirt you buy, all that money goes directly towards charity. So I'm really looking forward to finally having this all uh, figured out, sorted and ready to go for you guys. Uh, For those of you who had emailed me trying to procure sizes when I was going to do it the other way, uh, check your inboxes because uh, I've I've In uh, we're gonna say about a a half hour after I'm done recording this program, which will be before it gets released on the first, uh, you're gonna have an email link uh, sending you towards the Threadless store. So go check it out in there. It's fully customizable, which I think is sweet. So you can literally pick the style of shirt you want, the color of the shirt you want, if you want a hoodie, a zip, whatever, it's all on there. It's tremendous. So, anyways, grapplingwithcanada.threadless.com is where you can find all that wonderful stuff. Speaking of which, if you want to hear the promo about what happened on T-shirt gate, but more specifically, if you have ever wanted to hear the taxman unglued, unchained, uncensored, and unhinged, you have your chance. I was very graciously a guest on the Sunday Night Army podcast uh, with Jacob. Now, for those who are not familiar with him, uh, this Jacob and the Sunday Night Army podcast is kind of a cornucopia of podcasting topics. Uh, usually his episodes run anywhere from 10 to 40 minutes, quite a bit different than this marathon program that I always run. Uh, but he runs the gambit from talking about social issues To things like Facebook porn, it's an episode and it's tremendous. To things like uh, social media and how influential it is or is not. Uh, He also has a body positivity um, episode. Uh, Really great stuff, but hands down, my favorite thing that he does is he does a tremendous job of showcasing Canadian artists. uh, Specifically music artists. So what he'll do is he'll have an up-and-coming artist on who has just released a single. He'll have an interview with them. He'll play their single so you can actually hear the music that these people have put together. And then they go a little bit more in depth about uh, that person's career trajectory. Now, all the music, some of it is not my cup of tea. However, I still love the episodes because it gives you a really good insight about what makes these people tick. What makes them tick or what makes them produce the music they do and what makes them the way they are. So like I said, Jacob does a fantastic job. You can find him on Twitter at Sunday Night Army. Like I said, the episodes are quick, usually between uh, 15 and like 40 minutes. And then my... Meltdown episode on his program is about forty-five. So, anyways, uh, I want to say a big thank you to Jacob for having me on the program. Uh, it was a ton of fun. I highly suggest that you guys go check it out. Uh, once again, on Twitter at Sunday Night Army, or you can search on whatever podcasting platform that you are listening to me on. Uh, search for the Sunday Night Army podcast. In addition to. All of that fun stuff. I've had some fantastic five-star reviews that I'm going to get to later in that program. Look, there's my phone. It's probably another one right now. You can't see because it's not a video program, but I'm giving the old thumbs up. (laughs) But uh, anyways, uh, I'm going to be getting into those later on in the program, as well as a fantastic project that I was made privy to that I want to get into a little bit. Uh, It's based part in part Of one of the previous episodes that I did in the Grappling with Canada series. And it blew me away. So I'm looking forward to sharing a little tidbit with you guys uh, later on in today's episode. But the reason we're all here tonight. Archie the Stomper Goldie. Now I know that some people will just think and wrongly think. Oh He was, quote-unquote, only big in Calgary. Conversely, there may be some American listeners, for which I know I have quite a few, who may think that, oh, the Mongolian stomper was, quote-unquote, only big in Memphis. Both statements are equally wrong. And like I said, I have some tremendous guests that are going to really shed some light on, again, in my opinion the most underrated underappreciated and quite frankly one of the most history defining heels in professional wrestling history so as we move into the nuts and bolts of this program I'm going to play some classic wrestling audio now this is from Stampede Wrestling you're going to hear yourself some Archie the Stomper Goldie to get us primed for the rest of this episode and after that we're gonna start profiling the stomper please enjoy well, now before... you are
0: as lean and mean as ever you stomper. know something i love about these people here they love a winner they know who's top john i gotta hand it to you man jr's been calling me for four five six months he said archie come on up here we're in trouble they got some punks around here heart kids, especially Bret Hart going around. I hear about him he goes to the states once in a while he goes to Japan trying to build himself a reputation. Well I want to tell you something, Bret Hart. I beat your old man half to death and put him in the old folks home and I'm gonna beat you half to death if you got enough guts to get out here. this is my home, brother. You're stepping on my territory, just because old man Hart lives up on the hill and has got 29 kids. That don't make him any more better than I am. I'm a lot tougher than your kids ever thought of being Stu Hart, and I'll put Bret Hart in the hospital or any other Hart kid or anybody else. I've been crippling more people in the last two years in the wrestling profession than anybody in history. I go down into the record books as a crippler. I put him in the hospital, man. They carry him out. Bret Hart, let me ask you one thing. I've been challenging you. This man right here paid me a lot of money, and that's what it's all about, brother, money. He paid me a lot of money to come here and clean this place up. John, I want to ask you, where's all the big men? That cross-eyed, skinny Japanese punk just thing. in there I didn't even get a workout with him. If you're going to pay pay me some great money, you better get me some competition, man. Nothing has changed. He's going to better get me some competition. Because I'm going to put the people in the the hospital.
1: Now, as we really dig into the life and career of Archie Goldie, as impressive and as crazy as the stories are that you're going to hear in this program tonight, Unfortunately, the story and subsequently the interviews that I have all end on a somber mood. Now, this is not necessarily intentional. However, it does bring up a fantastic talking point uh, that I think that you're going to get the picture of as we kind of progress through the program. So, although this portion of the program tonight is And all, essentially, all three of the interviews that you're going to hear later in this program kind of end on a somber note. I hope that everybody will take the time to kind of use it as a bit of reflection and get out of it a certain personal touch, if you will. And I think you'll understand what I'm getting at uh, as we kind of move into the program. So for those who are not, aware. Uh, Archibald Edward Goldie was born November 22nd, 1936. Fun fact, shares the same birthday, November 22nd, as my mom. Hi mom, I know you ain't listening, but there's that too. So, all good and fun. Uh, He was born in Carbon, Alberta, Canada, which has roughly a population of 600 people. So, from there, he would become a massive star in obviously Calgary but also Western Canada. He had very impressive tours in Atlantic Canada and he was a massive star in the United States in specific promotions um, emanating out of Missouri, out of Texas, Georgia, Florida, California, Tennessee. Uh, He was also big in Puerto Rico. He had a very significant run in Japan and also Australia. So when I'm talking about Archie Goldie being a big-time player in the professional wrestling industry, I'm not sugarcoating it. This guy was huge. He was a massive star, not only in Canada and across the world, but a massive star for two different reasons. And this is very interesting because he's one of the only individuals that I know and if I'm wrong, please send your hate tweets to at six underscore podcast. It's fine. I can take the heat. But he's one of the only people in wrestling history who used one persona in one country and then another persona everywhere else. So in Canada, he was known as the loudmouth, braggadocious. He would annihilate his opponents on the microphone. And then eviscerate them in the ring. Whereas in the States, he always had a manager doing the speaking for him. Down in the States, he was known as the Mongolian Stomper. He did everything, including changing his entire appearance up in Canada. He would kind of wear his hair down-ish, if you will. His look kind of varied a little bit. Sometimes he would be bald. But he looked like your standard North American uh, heavyweight wrestler. In the States, however, he would grow his mustache in like a Fu Manchu. He would have his hair kind of pulled back in a little bit of a bun. And he would be known as, like I said, the Mongolian stomper. And he would have uh, managers speaking for him. He never talked, for the most part, except in a few territories. He did a little bit in Memphis. Uh, Towards the later years, he he, uh, started speaking in... Um, Louisville and Kentucky and some people would say that that kind of ruined the aura and mystique of Archie the Stomper because they had gone, you know 10-15 years of seeing him wrestle in these venues, never speaking or speaking quote-unquote Mongolian to his uh, manager who would then translate it for the uh, English speaking audience, we'll say. But a lot of people would say that when he started speaking himself, that it ruined the mystique a little bit because clearly then he's not Mongolian. Although, let's be frank, a lot of the crowds at that point, although they loved wrestling, especially in the South, they knew that there was, it wasn't on the up and up. They knew that there was a little bit of magic behind the scenes. So while I can appreciate that people would have kind of a a skewed look on, on the Stomper kind of taking away the Mystique and speaking for himself, I really don't think that in the overall crux of his legacy that that really affected a whole lot of it. Yes, does it ruin the Mystique a little bit? Sure. But you also can't be the exact same things for, you know, 20 years and expected not to get stale with with the audience so I can understand why he would have uh, done things the way he did and I can fully appreciate it. So a lot of people would wonder, okay so where did this all come from? So essentially, and we're going to get into this later in the program, he gets a start up in Calgary, it doesn't really work out the way that he wants in in Calgary and he moves down to uh, Kansas City. Uh, where Pat O'Connor was the big promoter there, came up with the Mongolian Stomper gimmick, and then paired him with the manager. So he was the one who kind of started this whole uh, program. What's even more impressive with Archie the Stomper is how many uh, world champions that he wrestled throughout his career. Uh, He wrestled everyone from Luthez, Dory Funk Jr., Terry Funk, Jack Briscoe, Rick Flair, Harley Race, and Gene Kaniski, who you will all know from our Gene Kaniski episode uh, back in episode five, I believe. And when I'm talking about how impressive he was in terms of what he was able to accomplish, you know, presenting two different personas in essentially uh, different markets... That's not the only impressive thing about him. He was an absolute machine mountain of a man. He was six foot three, 275 pounds, wearing massive uh, size 13 boots. And he was a physical specimen, not in the way that you would think, like, you know, a Hulk Hogan roided up and things like that. When you looked at Archie the Stomper, He looked like a professional athlete. He carried himself as an absolute pro. And when you looked at him, you didn't think that he was some schlub who, you know, was drinking a 12-pack of beer on his way between shows. He looked, acted, and presented himself as very intense, very serious, and took himself as such in the ring and outside of it as well. Now, I could wax poetic about you know what the Stomper meant to the Calgary territories, what he meant in America, but fortunately for all of you at home, I have some tremendous guests who are going to get into this topic a lot better. My first guest is Bo James. Now, for those who are not familiar, Bo is not just a former professional wrestler. Not only is he a former promoter and current promoter as well, I might add, he also works with current talent, and you're going to hear a little bit about that uh, in my interview or discussion with him in regards to uh, his interactions with Archer the Stomper Goldie. Of note, I think it's super interesting. Just on a side note, you'll hear people from maybe the southern states, who will say, oh, Archie was big here, or the Mongolian Stomper was big here, but I don't think he ever did anything anywhere else. And then you'll hear people in Calgary who will say, well, he was big here, but he didn't really do anything else. And I think part and parcel of that is because of, like I said before, the different uh, personas that he used in these different markets. But I find it fascinating that in all of these markets, he was a star. He was selling out uh, venues, like I said, in Calgary. He's selling out venues in Memphis, working against some of the biggest names in wrestling. Uh, like, at the time, Jerry the King Lawler, massive star. Uh, like I said, uh, Harley Race, massive star. He's working against all these different people and all these different promotions. It's incredible to think that a guy comes from, essentially, a footnote town in in Alberta, goes on to become one of the biggest stars of, essentially, North American wrestling and then wrestling abroad. Although, because this is grappling with Canada, I suppose we shouldn't be so surprised, considering the plethora of talent that I've already uh, talked about in the context of this program. But, I digress, I'm waxing a little bit here, but it doesn't take anything away from the interview that I'm going to get into right now. So, Before that, I'm going to play some classic audio. This is from the aforementioned time when our boy, Archie the Stomper Goldie, was taking on, actually he was at that time the Mongolian Stomper, taking on Jerry Lawler in Memphis. So please enjoy this classic wrestling audio, and on the other side, my conversation with Bo James. Please enjoy. We're in
2: the dressing room at the Memphis Mid-South Coliseum where an incredible battle just took place before 11,200 people in which the Mongolian Stomper won by disqualification over Jerry Lawler. Stomper, I've got to ask you this, the referee was in there trying to raise your hand to give the match to you and you refused to let him put your hand up in the air. Can Lance, I? Lance,
3: th- I made a promise to the people of Memphis last week and by getting my hand raised on a disqualification is not what I want that to me isn't finishing Jerry, L- Jerry Lawler off I promised him I was gonna bury him in his own trench with his rats with him and like I said he got disqualified the referee wanted to raise my hand but I didn't want him to raise my hand I want him to raise my hand when Lawler's laying in the trench but you know Lance you can't beat two guys at one time especially when you have yes a dirty low down rat coming off the top rope on your back with a whip in his hand you can't do that you can't beat two of them rats with one behind you so now Lance I'm gonna do something now I've never done in my thirteen years as a professional wrestler I'm gonna ask for help and I got the man right over here if you'll come over here is Rocky Johnson that saved my neck tonight Rocky, I'm going to ask you next week to be in my corner to watch the rats. To keep the rats off my back so I can complete the job with Lawler. Right on. I'll tell you one thing. I'll be in your
0: corner and I'll guarantee you one thing. If that bat makes one move, I'll guarantee you I'll bury him myself. Put it there, brother. Right on. Rocky Johnson and the Mongolian Stomp.
3: One last thing, Lance. I promised the people in Memphis that the blood would flow from Lawler's head and that I was going to finish the King of Memphis with Rocky Johnson in my corner to watch the rats. I'm going to complete the job for the people. I'm going to make my last promise. The blood will flow again and Lawler, yes, I will bury you in the trenches because Rocky is there to watch the rats and I'll complete my job.
2: There it is from the Mongolian Stomper. He had Lawler bleeding tonight. He won on a disqualification, refused to have his hand raised. He has promised back again more blood from Lawler, and he's going to finish the job this coming week with Jerry Lawler. This is Lance Russell from the Memphis Mid-South Coliseum.
1: All right, very pleased to be joined on the line right now by Bo James. Bo, how you doing? Doing wonderful. How is life down in the States right now? It's... Uh... A little bit hairy in some areas. I'm not sure how it is where you are. Uh, same kind of deal here. You know, we kind of
2: opened back up in May. And uh, I went back in the ring for the first time in 14 months after everything shut down. But in July and August, I had panels canceled because, you know, the virus got out of hand in different places. And school boards and different buildings said, hey, we need to shut this down. So it's just... It's uncertain times, and you never know what's coming tomorrow. So <laughs> that's the way I'm looking at everything now. Anytime the phone rings from somebody that I'm booked for, I'm thinking, yeah, here comes the cancellation. <laughs>
1: More importantly, how did that first bump feel after 14 months?
2: I, I wrestled my nephew the first night back in the ring. And uh, the longest break that I had had, and I've been in the ring for 31 years, uh, involved in wrestling for 33, in the ring for 31. I had a was in a car wreck in 04, and I was had to have surgery done on my ear. I was out about four and a half months. Ooh. And then in 2014, I had back surgery, and they told me I would be out a year. And I was back in the ring and back in the ring several nights a week in six and a half
4: months. Wow. Oh,
2: sitting still for fourteen it was fourteen months to the day. From when I came off the road and everything started getting cancelled till I went back in the ring and we were sitting in the dressing room and I told Jake, If I tell you to cover me, I'm not getting up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're going home. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's tremendous.
2: I said, I have, I said, I have no idea what is gonna to happen to my body out there when we get
1: to the ring. Wow! Wow! That's that's incredible. Well, I'm I'm happy to think at least that he took care of you out there.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know I've been not nearly as active in years past, but we're we're pretty active. I mean, one or two a week right now. Um, and we, matter of fact, we had one canceled for this Thursday. We were supposed to have a town going to get uh, the people over to build, and we're afraid to have a crowd in there. So that was the only one I had this week, so I'll just sit here this week and watch baseball and football.
1: <laughs> Good plan, at least. At least it uh, gives you a little yeah. bit to get uh, prepared for the next one, if you will. Yeah. So, naturally, we're here tonight to talk about uh, Archie Goldie, but before we talk about the Mongolian Stomper, I just give everybody a little bit of background about yourself.
2: Um, I was a super fan. I was watched every wrestling program I uh, went to the live matches here I live I grew up in East Tennessee um, 80 miles east of Knoxville almost to the Virginia line not f- far from Carolina so I lived where the Knoxville territory and the Crockett territory overlapped and I live in between Kingsport and Johnson City Kingsport was a every three week stop for Crockett. Johnson Steady was an every Tuesday night stop for Knoxville. So I got to see everybody live as a kid all the top stars, Steamboat, Youngblood, Flair, Dusty, Mulligan on the Crockett side, then the Golden Fuller family and the Stomper and everybody on the Knoxville side. And I just hung around the matches all the time as a kid. Uh, my mom worked for uh, Service Merchandise, which was a big retail store. And when Walmart came to East Tennessee, kind of like a good booker, they went and raided the talent
4: from yeah. all the other stores. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom, my mom
2: went to work for Walmart when they first came here. And one of her jobs for Walmart was she was over promotions and promoting the grand openings of these new Walmarts because it was a new thing here in the bit, in late 80s. And we got the idea about maybe we should book some wrestlers for the grand openings of some of these stores. And uh, she talked to Bob Pope. She called. He called back. He was Ron Fuller's partner in Knoxville. We started. She started booking the wrestlers, Johnny and Davey Rich, Scott Armstrong, Doug Furnace. So I got to know these guys when I'm 13, 14 years old. Wow. So they took care of the kid because mom's taking care of them, booking them into these deals and they're selling merchandise, so they'd always say, Hey, come to the matches, be our guest. And uh, I wasn't just going to the matches, I-, I was there early and would just go to the door or wherever and find the riches or Scott Armstrong and they would bring me and my family in. And we're in Knoxville one night and I'm sitting there at the merchandise table and Johnny and Davey Rich are talking. And uh, Ron West comes walking by. Ron West was town promoter and longtime referee, one of the best referees that ever was. It started with Nick Goulas, worked for Crockett, then went to work for Fullers, worked in Atlanta for Barnett, worked for Bill Watts, the best front office man of all time. Everybody says that about Ronnie West. He comes walking by one day, and Davey Rich says, Ronnie, give this kid a job. He loves our business, and he's always around. He called my mother that Tuesday and asked if he could hire me to help promote towns. Wow. So 14 I started helping promote spot towns in East Tennessee. Uh, did and sold merchandise, set up the ring, they paid me. Uh, I was around the boys, around the business. And it was I was around so much and around so many people
4: for so long, they just assumed I was smart.
2: <laughs> and I wasn't. And I had ideas like everybody does, but, you know, we're not 100% sure till we're in the ring. Well, now they tell you everything. So after the Knoxville office territory had shut down, there was, you know, these little independent outlaw shows around here, and I was helping doing the same thing. I'm 15 years old selling tickets in a little bitty spot town called McFeeders Bend, Tennessee, just a little bitty place. If you've ever seen the movie The River with Mel Gibson and Sissy Spacek, the, the farm in that movie was in McPheater's Bend. The school that they're playing softball is at is where we were at. Wow. And the promoter sticks his head out the curtain and he looks at me and he's like, come here. So I walk over and he says, do you think you could referee? And I said, well, you know, like when I grow up or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> <He> says <laughs> And he says, I mean, like in 10 minutes, uh, there's not a referee here, and it's time to start. And I was not smartened up. I was put out there. But I just tried to do what I'd seen all the referees before do. And I evidently did a good job because the guy running the town comes to my house. Uh, This was on a Friday or Saturday. He comes on Monday and says, hey, we would like to use him as a referee all the time. And then it just grew from that. At 16 years old, uh, Al Bass, the guy that was running those towns, and Al had been in a real bad car wreck years prior to that. And he was having health issues and crippled up. and just a, just a heck of a guy. And he's jokingly, I thought, says to me one night,
4: you want to take this over? <laughs> wow. This? <laughs> 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 and he's like, you do more
2: to promote it than anybody on the on card and next thing I know a few weeks later it gets serious and it's 16 February the uh, 16th 1991 I ran my first town where I was the boss it was my my money I had to go out and get it and you know uh, and it was a hopes and dreams promotion getting started and here we are 30 years later and I have promoted in Kentucky, West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee uh, with my own promotion. And I actually took a tour out west and did uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, and Wyoming a few years ago. And I've promoted towns for other people in Washington state, Louisiana, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania. So, you know, it was all all destined to be i i I tell people all i ever wanted to be my my kindergarten teacher i was one of the first years of her career and her last year my one of my nephews was in her class and he brought me to show and tell because his uncle was on tv and the whole deal so she told me that day she said out of ever how many years it was she had taught and the hundreds of kids that she had she said you are the only person that ever stood up at five years old and said, I'm going to be this and became that, that she'd ever had. She said, and I remember that day in kindergarten when they were asking (laughs) because I said, I'm going to be a wrestler. And everybody laughed. Everybody. The teacher, the kids, the teacher's aide, everybody laughed. And here I am, 33 years later, involved in wrestling, three-time published author, I've been on CBS Evening News, I've been on HBO Vice News, I've been all across the country and I've got to live
1: my dream. And now who's laughing, hey? What? <laughs> <laughs> so when my goodness, and all from refereeing, just a just a, a what a crazy story to just come from, hey kid, can you ref this match? Just incredible. <laughs> Only in wrestling could you ever hear something like that, hey?
2: Oh, yeah. You know, and that's how all of my nephews followed in my footstep. Uh, I've had three of them in the ring. Uh, Zach, refereed for a while. Jake, and referee, still full-time now. Uh, his older brother, Dakota, referee, and uh, wrestled some. Plus, Dakota was very good at TV production. He, he produced the TV for me for a couple years. and Actually, four. I forgot. My other little nephew, Tyler. He refereed some, and all of them got thrown in the same way, where they were in a town with me, and I walked up and said, come with me, you want to ref. And they were all teenagers, you know, just because I didn't give them time to think about it. And, and they had grown up around the wrestling, so they knew, they knew all the boys, and the boys knew to take care of them, and it worked.
1: That's tremendous. Yeah, what's good for the goose, as they say, hey, yeah. So, because you had such a, an early and incredible start to the business, are you? Would you know then when your first uh, interaction with the stomper would have been? Uh,
2: very early on, probably within four to six months of being in the ring. Oh uh, wow! Because once I started here. Al got me booked around Knoxville and and Al's passed away and and Al's business partner who became my business partner for years who became like a brother to me, Glenn Day who wrestled as Crunch the Equalizer uh, passed away this year. Crunch started getting me booked so he'd have somebody to travel with him and I'm 15, 16 years old, and I walk in a dressing room in Knoxville, and there sits the face of my childhood nightmares.
4: <laughs>
2: and I'm like, because oh. there, there was four people. I had I had nightmares about the Great Kabuki, Jody Hamilton, the Assassin, Joe LaDuke, and the Mongolian Stomper when I was a kid. And there sits the Stomper, and I was scared to death. And I, I but you got to do it. Walked over, introduced myself. And he says, just call me Archie. Wow! And that day, your friendship began.
1: So, uh, before you had met him, how would you have seen him uh, previous to that? Like, what television stations or um, uh, promotions would you have gotten down there?
2: Ron Fuller, Southeastern
1: Wrestling. Okay. Where he was the monster heel, and he was smashed over had the big run
4: with his, with Garvin, had the big run with Joe LaDuke where he almost killed Joe LaDuke on TV where he hit him in the head with the sledgehammer. Yes. Um, then
2: uh, he worked for Flair and Mulligan after they had bought Knoxville. Then he came back for Fuller through the years. So I, I had seen him all my life. And I had seen him live many times. Um, and i tell you, when Stomper went to the ring in Johnson City, There was nobody in the hallways. There was nobody trying to pat anybody on the back or get a high five. They knew the stomper was coming. People scattered. And that was, and I tell people this all the time, I was terrified of him as a fan, as a kid. Then I got to know him very well and was around him. I was really scared of him then because I knew after getting to know him, this dude's even better than than I thought he was. And uh, he worked for the Knox County in Knoxville for the Sheriff's Department. Uh, and one of the things that he was good at, if they had warrants and they needed to go pick a guy up and they knew he was going to fight, send the stomper. And the stomper would go get him and he was coming to jail.
1: So I will get a little bit more in depth into that in a minute. But So when you first meet him, you're you're a young kid still. You're sitting across from him, you go up, you introduce yourself, he says, call me Archie. Was it at that point that you started going on tour with him, or was that a one-off and you didn't see him after for a little bit, or how did, how did the relationship no, kind of develop?
2: It was, uh, we were just in towns around each other, uh, you know, because he lived in Knoxville, and I'm up here, so I was around, you know, doing Maryville, in City, Knoxville, these are all suburbs of knoxville so all these towns are running pretty regular and everybody uses Archie because he was an easy guy to deal with he had name value he didn't break your bank and your budget to bring him in and work and he worked hard and, and so i was around him a lot and then finally one night uh, i'm probably trying to think here maybe end of 16 getting ready turn 17 might have just turned 17 i said hey archie can i get your phone number and he gave it to me and i said i'm gonna call you this week so i called him to start booking him in my towns and he worked on it all for me for years he was my champion for a while um but before that rick connor's old-time knoxville guy Rick is kind of the stew Hart of Knoxville. Rick was the trainer. He trained Tim Horner. He trained the Dirty White Boy. He trained Doug Furness uh, and a lot of other guys that worked. Ron Sexton, a lot of other guys that worked the territories. Um, but Rick was a boxer, a judo guy, and a amateur wrestler. High level, army champion. He won five tough man contests. He was a judo champion. He was MMA before
1: there was MMA. Jeez.
2: And he was another one of them guys that once
4: I got to know him and knew his history, you're like, man, this, this guy's a bad dude. Yeah, but he's I, a bad man. <laughs> yeah, Rick liked me too. And he
2: tells me one night uh, he's booking a town and that was running every week, and I was working there. And he says, We're going to turn you heel and make you a manager.
4: I'm a kid ref. I'm like, No, you're not. <laughs> you yeah. Know, I'm <laughs> you. I was like, No. I've seen what happens to some of these managers, and they said, you're dependable, you're going to do good. So we do a hot finish where I help the Heels win.
2: The next week, he tells me, you know, get a get a cowboy hat, get a uh, this and that, and you're going to be my manager. So uh, we're sitting in the dressing room, and Rick says, I'm going to go out and do this interview. He gives the interview to me. He tells me what he's going to say in the interview. Yes.
4: I've never did an interview. I've never, did any, I've never even picked up a microphone other than just
2: setting up the building and getting ready for that night. So we go out. He gets the mic, and he says, everybody be quiet. I have an important announcement to make. So I think he's getting ready to do the interview. I'm just going to stand behind him and clap, cheer, do whatever. He says, my new manager has
4: something to say. <laughs> and I'm on the spot. And I'm like, oh my
2: gosh. So I, I just do the interview the best I could that he gave me in the
1: dressing room. Yeah. So we're doing this for a few weeks. And he says, Stomper's
2: coming in, uh, going to start working here in two weeks. <clears throat> so I'm like, oh, great. Cause I get, you're learning from these guys, being around them and watching them and listening. And he goes, you're going to start managing the Stomper. Wow. And I said, what? He says, you're going to start managing the Stomper. He said, he'll help you. You'll learn from So, first night, I got to go out and do an interview for the Stomper because the Mongolian Stomper doesn't speak. That's right. And he's standing behind me. I'm a nervous wreck. <laughs> I, think I, was, I think I was 17 at this time. And he says, uh, tell him Andre couldn't beat me. Tell him Hogan couldn't do it. Harlan, he's just he's just feeding me lines to you, and I just I'm taking them and using them, and then we go to the ring, and he just murders some poor guy and stomps his brains out and beats him, and we're coming back from the dressing room, and he ain't said nothing to me. We go in once we get out of the sight of the people. Archie says, "Hey, good job,"
1: and that was it. And <laughs> just like that.
2: To, yeah, and I got to manage him for six or eight weeks because you can't have the stomper there every week, you know? Uh, so six or eight weeks and, uh, Rick says he'll come back in probably four or five months. We'll do another four or five week run with him. And that's what happened. And I just got to work with Archie a lot and got to be around him. And, uh, he, Archie knew my family cause he, he came up and started working for me. And, uh, he, uh, Him and my dad became friends because my dad was my ring announcer. Uh, my nephews were little boys, little boys, like two and a half and four. And I'm in the shower one night my hometown, and I come out of the shower, and I'm drying off. And I hear my nephews laughing. And I'm like, what? So I look around the corner, and there sits the Mongolian stomper, the baddest man on earth. And he's got Dakota on one knee, he's got Jake on the other knee, and he's tickling them and playing with him.
1: Come on. <laughs> and I'm like, what kind of
2: bizarre world am I in right now? This is just absolutely crazy. And he just, you know, I got to see another side of him, and I got to work with him a lot. And, uh, you know, he, he, he had Alzheimer's at the end. And a lot of the boys wanted to see him. And people kept telling me, you got to go see him. And you don't know who anybody is. That's what they kept saying. You don't know who anybody is, but go see him. And i went through that with an aunt. I went through that with my grandfather. And I said, I, that's not going to be my last memory. Mm-hmm. Stomper knowing what he was and who he was. I can't do it. You know, but I, I was there for the funeral and, you know, and I've got videos and I've got pictures and all kinds of stuff. and, and Anytime his name comes
1: up, I've got a story. So there's a couple of things that I wanted to just uh, elaborate on a little bit that you had brought up. So you had mentioned the point that you always found him very easy to work with. There's been so many stories or innuendo that uh, seem to paint the picture that he was difficult or that he was hard to deal with or that he was high strung, but everybody that I've talked to speaks differently or contradicts that. Do you think that that image is just people are basing that based on his in-ring character? Or was there, is there something that, that is a loss in translation here that people are seem to be missing about him?
2: Um, he would leave territories if he thought he was being misused. Um, like he'd went to work for Bill Watson he, he was there maybe four weeks and went back to four. Uh, he went to work for Verne and you know if he didn't think the money was right or he didn't he wasn't going to argue with you yes and he was he wasn't going to fight for what he thought was his I'll just go back to Knoxville or I'll go I'll go home to Calgary and that's what he did and uh, I now if you crossed him, you're gonna have a bad day. I saw him one time. This is this is very early in knowing him. We're in a nightclub in Knoxville. And something happened in the ring. I don't know. I wasn't the referee in that match. I was in the back waiting to go to the next match. And the guy that he worked with come running through the door running and said, I gotta get out of here. I gotta get out of here. He's gonna kill me. And he came. Here comes Archie through the door stomping, and you could tell he was mad. And the guy goes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and he's trying to make an excuse for whatever he did. And Archie reached right out with his thumb, and his pointing finger that was bent, and he grabbed him by the Adam's apple, and he put him to sleep. <laughs> and I'm standing right there watching, and I said, oh my gosh,
1: he'll kill you. You know, so. Yeah, good good he has I'm on his good side. <laughs> yeah. But if you were
2: business with Archie, Archie was business with you. Uh, he had no ego. Now he wanted to protect who the stomper was. Uh, I remember one night giving him a finish and he said, I'm not saying no, but can we do it just a little different and do it this way? And he explained it to me and he says it makes both of us stronger and, and i said yes um he still put the guy over but we just did it a little different than i had originally said but i was a kid learning and it was a great learning experience for me to word where some guys would have just said no i'm not doing it he, he did not have that trouble
4: whatsoever
1: he always seemed to be to me, at least, and, and then obviously from the you know the people that I've talked to and the articles that I've read, that he's was very much like a thinking man's wrestler. He would think about storylines and and how they would make him look, as well as how his opponent looked coming out of it. Uh, yeah. He he would go out of his way to make sure that uh, that things made sense in the ring to translate later on. He always seemed to be kind of a big planner. Was that your impression of him as well? Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, because, like, when I would bring him in for, say I would bring him in and say, you know, I've got six or eight dates on you in the next month or two months or three months. Okay, who am I going to work with, and what is, what do you want at the end of this deal? And I would tell him, this is what I want to do. And he would think of a way. To make sure when well, we're done he's still strong and so is the guy that he's worked with and it but he would also tell you i've got to get the heat i've got to get the heat i've got to get it early so you know pretty much the first night if archie came in like the night when i brought him in to work with mike sampson the gq stratus him and i had a guy in like a jason out get uh, the skull crusher there had to be blood different day different time Stomper's going got to stomp your brains out. You've got to get that heat. You know, but in the end, you guys are
1: going to come out on top. And he knew that, and he was, like I said, he was not hard to deal with at all. Now, there's a story that you had briefly touched on, which I, I have to circle back to, because, you know, I've, I've heard it a few times from a few different people, but it, it's... In regards to the sledgehammer incident uh, with Joel LeDuc. Now, were you present for that, or is, is that something you caught on uh, television? I, I would have seen it on television, but I was
2: only three or four years old. Um, but I had the program, the weekly event programs from Knoxville and Johnson City from that time. So I've seen it, I've heard about it, and I have the video
1: up. You have the um, video?
2: And it's getting ready to be on Ron Fuller's Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel.
1: Wow.
4: Um, I I just today, matter of fact, sent it to Ron. I said, look, I have it. Let's play it. Let's show it. (laughs) Uh,
2: And so we're going to have to do some uh, editing this week to take the uh, copyrighted music off of it. But here's what's great. Les Thatcher, who was commentating and who was there, is still working with us so we're just going to use less. to call it again. Wow. It's from the profile that they did on the Stomper, and they show it. My story that I heard from Stomper, it's like, it's a little different than Ron Fuller. Ron Fuller says they came to him with the idea, and he didn't want to do it. Stomper said Robert Fuller, had the idea, and pitched it to him and LeDuc. And they were kind of like, no, no. And Robert talked them into it. Uh, but what they did is they went out there, and it was something that Igor had done, and a lot of other wrestlers had done over the years, where the manager busts the block on the stall head Then they come back next week, and LeDuc comes out, and he says, I'll show I'm as tough as him. I'll let you do it to me. When the block that Stomper had on his head was the regular-sized center block. The block that LeDuc had
4: on his head <coughs> looked like a cornerstone to a skyscraper. <laughs> a good old block that he thought, well, the
2: bigger the block, the less chance of getting hit
4: in the head. Jeez. So... They go to do it, and Stomper
2: grabs the sledgehammer out of gorgeous George Jr.'s hand, and he swings it. Well, he's thinking, bigger block, i got to swing harder. So he ends up hitting the block. The block drives LaDuke's neck down into his shoulders, and then the hammer hits the back on Duke's head.
1: Oh, God.
2: He goes into convulsions right there in the ring. <laughs> I mean, he's got a brain injury right there in the ring, on the TV. And they have to hold the taping up to get the paramedics in there. He legit was in the hospital for eight or ten days. Um, it made all the local news. It, it, was, it was a big, big deal. And he almost killed him.
1: Yeah, no. It was a, legitimately. He almost killed him. This isn't one of the. This was not a. This is not storyline anymore. This is real life. Right, and it got
2: so much news attention. The newspapers, the TV news. People knew this is for real. Even if you thought okay, it could be a work or it ain't real. Written, everybody knew this man almost killed this man on television. So. uh, Now are having to feed different opponents to the Stomper because they do not think the plan was him and LeDuc. (coughs) Excuse me. So they don't know how long LeDuc's going to be out. They have no clue. LeDuc goes, uh, Jimmy Golden goes to see LeDuc in the hospital on a Friday. So this would be 13 days after the incident. He comes back. To the, he comes to the building that night and he says, he's gone.
1: He's not in the hospital. He checked, himself out. So now they don't know they, where he is.
2: They don't know where he's at. They thought he might have went home to Canada to, to recuperate. So Stomper goes to the ring to work with who? I think it was Ricky Gibson. He's having the match. He wins. Gorgeous George Jr. Is in the ring with him after the match. And they hear the grumble of the fans, and they see in the coliseum they would turn the lights out during the match, and then they would turn them up if you went out on the floor. Yes. Or when the, or when the match was over, the well, Leduc, when the lights come up, Leduc is walking down the steps of the coliseum through <laughs> the people with a double-edged axe. <laughs> And they see him. And Stomper told me, this is the only time in my life I was afraid.
1: My God.
2: He's coming to kill us. So they look at each other and they say, it's time to go. They run for their life. Uh, Gorgeous George Jr. and Stomper. Ladoop gets in the ring, he picks up the microphone,
4: and then he says, guess who's come home to Knoxville? Oh, wow.
2: Stomper, <laughs> you're a dead man. They Jeez. don't know if he's working or not.
1: He, doesn't, he doesn't know if he's they, working or they, not. Right.
2: They think he has come to murder us. They leave. They get their stuff and leave. And they had to have a conversation. And, it, and then he was like, It's all of our fault. It's just as my fault as it was your fault. I should have never agreed. I should have never put that block on you know, it's just,
1: No kidding.
2: Who, who does that? You know, <laughs> like we're dumb. But we're going to draw some big money. And they drew some big money off of it.
1: I can only imagine being in the building that night. Like, like uh, the, the chills that must have been going up everybody's spine to see Joel the Duke coming down the aisle way with an axe, and you're like, what is happening here? Yeah, and,
2: and, and they stole out for weeks in a row because people said it's gladiators fighting to the death. Somebody's going to die. And they were selling out the small towns. They're selling out Johnson City. They're selling out Crossville. They're selling out Hazard, uh, you know, which Hazard and Johnson City were the B and C towns. But the little towns they're going to, and there's like Newport, Tennessee, they're setting records. Morristown, they're turning people away. There's more people outside trying to get in than there's in the building. It, this is a huge, huge money-drawing angle. And – I don't think they had a match that lasted over six minutes because they sold real. LaDuke hit the ring and they went to fighting. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like uh, what Brody and Abdullah would do a few years later.
1: So I guess uh, in terms of uh, your in-ring Work with with the stomper like we've kind of covered that as well. You had also mentioned that after he was done in the ring, he had taken a job with it was a sheriff's department, correct?
5: Yeah, yeah, he was a deputy sheriff.
1: So, because he ended up moving to Knoxville, um, was that more he just he liked it being there? Was it um, because it was easier on him physically? Like, wh- what was the draw for him to? make knoxville his home and then to obviously get a job with the uh, sheriff's department the mountains
2: Fu- fuji came here and never left fuji had a home here the whole time he worked for defense uh ron fuller's lived here on and off for years he's back here now retired and came back to knox he's right outside of knoxville in the mountains uh, you know kane lives here uh Jimmy Golden made his home
4: in Knoxville. Everybody that comes to these mountains don't want to leave. <laughs> we, live,
2: we live in one of the most beautiful parts of the world. And, uh, you know, it's just – and he was so over in this territory. Stoner was. He loved it. He knew the area because he worked in every town within 100 miles of Knoxville in every direction. And it's a good place to raise your kids. It's, it's just uh, the economy's fairly good here in East Tennessee. Uh we're one of the fastest growing states in in the country. Uh Knoxville has exploded, Nashville's exploded, where I live in the Tri-Cities has exploded. People are coming here from major markets because they like the country and they like the mountains. And you get thirty-five minutes outside of Knoxville, you're in the middle of nowhere. You know. (laughs) So they can get lost on the lake or they can get lost on a hiking trail and stomper loved the lake and he loved riding his bike uh he would ride his bicycle from knoxville to morristown and wrestle then ride his bicycle back to knoxville 38 miles each way
1: that's incredible
2: that's that's the kind of machine that man was he was a machine he was unreal and uh the first time that i wrestled the stomper, um I had managed him, I had reffed him, he had knocked me down a few times, always took care of me. But still, that first night you're in the ring looking across the ring at
4: him, you're thinking, I'm getting ready to get it handed to me. Yeah, <laughs> <You> know? yeah, know, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a whole different now.
2: I'm you know, woo. but no, he I, I, and the scary side is laying there as he hits the ropes and comes running with that big stomp to your head. And you're looking up and you see that size 14 coming right at you. And you're like, oh my goodness. Yeah, I'm done for. Yeah, and I, I have seen him stomp some people. But I, I was never stomped, you know, other than in a working way.
1: In terms of his his physical ability and, and his, the shape he would keep himself in, like he was never – and I had this conversation with another guest on the program, but he was never – a body guy like he was never Hulk Hogan with 24 inch pythons no. blah 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 but every you can look at him and you knew that he was an athlete who took it seriously and yeah from his from his matches from the way he carried himself when you looked at him you just you you just knew just looking at him that he was he was a specimen and
2: this is He could do squats all day. He would ride his bicycle 20-plus miles a day. Uh, His legs were unreal. He had the wheels underneath him were unreal. Uh, He was cardio. You couldn't blow him up. You could
4: not. Uh, I've seen guys try. and, and, (laughs) and, and
2: And him play with them. Him let them try to blow him up
1: just to see how far they would try to take it. Yeah. And and he was a
2: health nut. He was always in shape. He was a he was a monster, and he was a machine. Um, and you know that was his whole presence. And he knew that presence was his selling point. Of you didn't see people on the street like him back then. You didn't see people coming at you as you're standing there in the alley like him. And he 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 didn't speak until. They had turned him babyface in '79, so nobody had heard his voice. So you, you, he was a mystery, a man of mystery. You just knew this man stomps people's brains out. He beats their brains out. He barks and slobbers. He—he's an animal, and he was a 180 from that. If you got to know Archie, Archie was—he was funny. Archie had a sense of humor. You know, he, he liked to—he uh, liked to go watch people in McDonald's. Order you know all this food and then they would get a diet coke and he would just laugh, just laugh laugh hysterically about it. You know, it just (laughs) (laughs) and and just little things that uh, would happen in the ring. He would kind of look at you and he. I never saw him laugh in the ring, but you knew he was about to laugh. You know, he just he had a sense of humor and he was. Good guy. I never got to travel with him. That's the one thing, is, I lived up here, and he lived in Knoxville. So if we're going to the towns, you, you would see him in the town. But uh, just about everybody else from that time frame that I worked with, I made at least a couple of towns with. And uh, I never got to, to travel with Archie. I, that's one of my great regrets. I wish I would have got to make a couple of towns with him.
1: He would have had a W on the bike then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He had been his old. Uh, I'm trying to think
2: what the, it was a Chrysler, an old Chrysler that he had uh, that he would drive if it was you know over 30 or 40 miles. He would drive his car if it was raining. But uh, he, he rode the bike to Morristown with his kid on the back a few times. Wow! <laughs> the back of the bicycle and went and wrestled and he rode, drove him home. You know, he, he was. There'll never be another like him. There'll never be another. Stomper, there'll never be another Mongolian stomper. There'll never be another character, uh, you know of that. And if the only thing that you know of him is Archie, the Stomper Goldish from Calgary, then look at Ron Fuller's YouTube, the Southeastern Rewinder. Look at my YouTube, King of Kingsport, because I have videos of him where you can see him as the Mongolian Stomper, and uh, it, it's a, it's somewhat the same guy, but it's. It's also 100% different and because in Calgary he did his own interviews and he talked and he grew his hair out, you know, where he didn't have that in the States. And he was a success everywhere he went, Kansas City, Georgia, Florida, uh, Knoxville. Uh, you know, everywhere that he went he grew money because he was a businessman and he was somebody that truly understood what it took to draw a house.
1: And in keeping with that, it's funny you mentioned, like, you know, he, uh, if you only saw him in Calgary, you're missing out, or if you only saw him in one of the other territories, you're missing out on on the the total package that he presented, because, yeah, he was a guy who, like we were saying, not only physically took himself seriously, but took his presentation seriously, so you have, and that's what, I, I totally agree with your point, that you'll never see another one like him, because... It, it's almost impossible in today's day and age that you're going to have somebody who is that disciplined to make sure that who they portray in the ring is who the people see them as instead of, you know, yeah, he, they they go home and they hop on Twitter and, and they're totally different or, or any kind of, you know, things like that. He, he never went in
2: public. He never went out in the public people could see him other than to get to and from the wrestling matches uh, until years later he, he uh, it, when he was riding his bike alongside the road he would have the sweats on the sweatshirt and the knit cap so you just saw this big guy you didn't realize hey that's the stomper when you went by him uh, you know he, he protected himself because that was his money and he protected it as far as you could protect it he, he would not speak English or wouldn't, he wouldn't speak periods and if they stopped at a gas station, he wouldn't speak. Uh, most time, he didn't get out of a car. He would have one well, of the other boys go do it. When
1: Don Carson and Gorgeous, he just, he protected it all the way. All right, so I know you, you are a very busy man, and i got to let you go for the night tonight. But uh, where can uh, people get in touch with you?
2: Uh, at King of Kingsport on Twitter, uh, on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Pro Wrestler Bo James. That's B-E-A-U. Everybody misspells it the first time. <laughs> uh, also, if you want to see some of the stuff the Stomper working with me, which I've got a lot more to go up. I've got a streaming service. Southern States Wrestling Network. PivotShare.com. Free seven-day trial to check it out. You'll see the Stomper, Buddy Landale, Rockwell Express, Sherry Martell, Jerry Lawler, Jimmy Golden. uh, Gosh, Arn Anderson, the list goes on and on. People that's worked for me over the last 30 years, and we're going through the year 2002 right now on there, but I've got stuff from all 30 years. You can check it out, plus a lot of other great independents from the South here over the years. Check that out, and it's only $4.99 a month after your free day, seven-day trial. And uh, Southeastern Rewind right now is taking a lot of my time. That's Ron Fuller's, uh YouTube And Ron and I are working to make sure the history of Knoxville in Alabama is told correctly. And we're going to show you some rare videos from our collections, like Stomper and LaDuke, coming up. And I think it'll be up next week as we record this. So we got a lot of great stuff. So just give me a follow. Let me know you heard this. And I always enjoy hearing feedback from people from wherever I do these podcasts at. And I love talking about the history. Of the business, that has given me everything that I've
1: ever had. Well, I appreciate your time tonight, and I I really appreciate all the hard work that you guys are putting in. Um, preserving the history is really important because otherwise, it's if when it's gone, it's gone, and and unfortunately, if it's if it leaves or is being told incorrectly, then man, that's just uh, it's a shame. So whoever, I, I'm
2: whoever lives longest writes history, so we're going to make sure it's wrote right.
1: I couldn't say it any better myself. Both, thank you very much for your time tonight. Thank,
2: thank you very much. Hopefully, I'll come back. We'll talk about somebody else on a different episode.
1: Hey, anytime. Oh, doors open. All right. Thank you. Before I unleash my next guest onto everybody, I have some classic wrestling audio for everyone to enjoy. Uh, this comes courtesy of Stampede Wrestling. This is from a feud between. Archie the Stomp for Goldie, and Harley Race. So I'm going to play this classic wrestling audio, and on the other side, a recurring guest all the way from episode one of Grappling with Canada. Who is it? Find out on the other side of this. I told
0: Dan Crawford, and I told all these other punks, that there's no man in this world gonna stop me from getting that world belt. That world heavyweight wrestling belt is going to be mine. It's going to be mine because I have earned the reputation to meet the world heavyweight champion. And like I said, nobody is going to stop me and nobody did. Well, you're Tommy, you've beaten him three times. That's right. Here comes the man that I have beat three times when he was the U.S. champion. There he is. Three That's right. times. That's right. You know, it never.
4: It never hurts to have
0: an edge, to have an edge on a man like this man. I've got my edge now. You come, Stomper, you come for this, and I'll guarantee you that I walk out of there a winner. I told these people here just a few minutes ago that I can beat any man in the world, and I can beat I'm at him
4: Well now,
0: this is one time I might be all in favor of the Stomper this new champion is something else again speaking of something else again that's it no it's not it like i said before nothing is going to keep me from the world's title not even the world's champion well you want to know look at him The staff are just going to work on this guy, Harley Race, and nobody is interfering. Nobody seems to give a darn. Like I'm going to say again, nothing, nothing is going to keep me from the world's title. I don't give a damn what I have to do to win it.
1: All right, very pleased to be joined on the line with returning guest from episode one. You may remember him. Uh, the author of, like I said in that episode, The Bible of Stampede Wrestling, Mr. Heath McCoy. Heath, how you doing? Very good. How are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I can't really complain right now. And if I did, nobody would listen anyway. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for any of the guests who haven't listened to our first episode, first off, shame on you because it was tremendous. But for. Those who may not be familiar with yourself, uh, let's just hear a little bit about yourself before we get into today's uh, topic du jour. Sure, um, I wrote the book. Um, the reason I'm talking to you
6: right now, I wrote the book "Pain and Passion: The History of Stampede Wrestling." So uh, I was, uh, I was a newspaper journalist for for uh, 15 years. A lot of my career was in the Calgary Herald. Uh, I was actually, a, 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 you know, music and. And, uh, pop, pop critic, pop music critic, and stuff for years. But uh, there, was, there was a point when I was doing news. Um, in 1999, I was I was just sort of starting off at the Calgary Herald, uh, and that's when Owen Hart died. And I wound up uh, going to the Hart House uh, to to cover that story. And I had an insight into the the Hart family that I think the other reporters around me didn't have because I had grown up watching Stampede Wrestling. I'd, I'd grown up with the Hart family. Um, and I and I followed them into the WWF, and uh, you know I knew I knew I sort of knew this was something about this world that the other the other reporters that congregated there from you know around the world didn't, and I kind of got to know and as and as I covered this story because it was this continuing saga you know the Hart family was suing Vince McMahon and this was an, an you know an ongoing thing and it was all this drama within the family, um, and I got to know the Hart family, and uh, the more I got to know the Hart family, I I thought. At first, I thought I, I should do a book about the death of Bowen Hart. But then, you know, but then I thought, no, I want to do something. I want to do the, the history of Stampede Wrestling. I want to do the history of the whole family. So, uh, yeah, I just, I spent, I spent years sort of researching and, and interviewing people from, from throughout the history of the promotion and, you know, interviewing the family extensively. And, uh, yeah, I wrote, I wrote the book, Pain and Passion, the History of Stampede Wrestling it came out in 2005. And, um, yeah, it's still people are still
1: interested today, so and I'm, I'm flattered by that. Which, in reality, too, if you didn't write the book, if you would have, sorry, I should preface this, if you would have wrote the book with your original intention, then perhaps a lot of the information that a lot of us fans who missed out on all the great periods of Stampede Wrestling, we would have never known it because if you didn't write a lot of that, it would have never been spoken about afterwards, and then it who knows who would have known it after that? So, I have to commend you for for definitely uh, going with your gut and and doing the the extra work. Yeah, thank you. Stampede Wrestling was a very special part of my
6: life, and it was a special part. You know, I grew up with it. It was these guys were my superheroes as kids. You know, and I, I every every Saturday morning, or Saturday afternoon, I'd watch I'd watch Stampede Wrestling, and I'd go to the matches in Saskatoon whenever I could when when they'd come through Saskatoon and. And uh, and it was a generational thing. My grandpa watched it. My dad was into it. Um, you know, years and years. It was just such a part of the Western Canadian culture, Stampede Wrestling. And it, you know, I just knew it had. They had these colorful characters and this colorful past, and it was sort of unique compared to other wrestling territories. And I just thought there's something special here. This this needs to be, you know, this needs to be chronicled. This needs to. We need. We need. This needs to be recorded there needs to be a record of this and that's what that's what motivated me to write specifically about the Stampede wrestling territory
1: and naturally a big part of your writing was talking about our our topic today the stomper uh, now really, yeah. yes sir now this will be a two-part question uh first part is what was your first m- kind of memories or introduction to uh archie goldie and then as you kind of Matured as a fan, what were your impressions of him as you kind of progressed throughout your fandom of Stampede Wrestling? Okay,
6: um, my first impression, my, the first exposure I had to Archie the Stomper Goldie, uh, was not in his initial run in Stampede Wrestling. You know, and some people would say his prime in Stampede Wrestling, which was that uh, 1967 to probably about 74, 75 period when he was there a lot. I missed all that because I was, I, you know, I wasn't born yet. Yes. <laughs> But uh, so so my time was was watching in the in the you know the early eighties basically the, the you know the the era of the Dynamite Kid and the young Bret Hart and that kind of stuff and so in nineteen eighty three they brought him around and it was this sort of I, I'd never heard of the guy before it was like you know they're they're talking about the coming the return uh, to the territory of Archie the Stomper Goldie and Ed Whalen sort of edu- you know the, the uh, Stampede Wrestling announcer Ed Whalen's educating me about Archie the Stomper, You know, he was, the, he was the greatest heel of his time and he was, he was, you know, he was the scourge of the territory in the 70s and they're bringing him back to Stampede Wrestling and, they, and there's, so there's this huge, tremendous build-up to Archie the Stomper Goldie uh, and then he comes into the territory, comes back in and you know, in 83, I think the summer of 83 maybe, and, uh, yeah, sure enough, he's, 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 he's a killing machine, you know, he's a little older now, he's a little bit more <laughs> long in the tooth, but, you know, they throw a bunch of jobbers at him at first, and he destroys these guys, uh, and then he started, you know, he, uh, he has his run with Bret Hart, he, you know, he starts getting back into his old battles with the Hart family, of course, it's not Stuart anymore, now it's Bret that he's taking on, um, but he's, but yeah, he's this unstoppable, uh, killing machine sort of thing, and then he, he's just, and, um... I don't know if I want to give it give it up. The, the, the thing that really impressed uh, Archie the Stomper's uh, relevance to me was was an angle he gets into with Bad News Allen, which they sort of build up to. Uh, um, I do if you want to talk about that now, or
1: if I, we should save that for later. That's a little tease for a little bit later in our conversation tonight. Yeah. So, yeah. so you were introduced to him more in the lore aspect, and then you got to see this, this legend that was played up by... Uh, by Ed Whalen and everybody else. Um, yeah. So for yourself, being that... Okay, so you hear about him, then you get to see him in person. Were you, When you were attending the shows and when you were seeing him, did you start to see that... um, that kind of turn from the fans where, yeah, he's a heel, we're supposed to boo him, but they had so much respect for him that it was kind of like those... I don't know what... it, it Just that the crowd had that certain type of energy around him, not like they didn't hate him because he was a heel, they booed him because they knew he was that damn good at being a heel.
6: Yeah, absolutely, there was that, there was that, there was, yeah, it was a love-hate thing, it, kind of the Dynamite Kid had the same thing, you know, he was, most of the time that he was in Stampede Wrestling, it wasn't until the very end of his Stampede Wrestling run that he was, Uh, you know, he kind of did the babyface turn, but he was a, he was a vicious, wicked, heel for most of the time that I was watching him, but people loved him. I loved the Dynamite Kid. I couldn't, I couldn't admit to myself that I loved. <laughs> I right? had to love the hearts, you know. But I loved him. I thought he was the greatest, and and uh, and it was the same thing with Archie the Stomper. Uh, yeah, he he was the heel. He got the booze. Uh, people, you know, jeered him and hated him, but they, there was this tremendous respect for him, especially from the old school fans. And you know, Ed Whalen again, he taught, he kind of educated the young fans like me and said, "This guy is something." Like even Ed, who is like, you know, Ed would do the his announcer thing, and he would, would kind of heckle the heels and you know be outraged at the antics of the heels, and you know, and, and obviously he's supportive of the of uh, the baby faces, the Hart family, and and their cronies, but you could tell Ed has got this great respect for Archie the Stomper and he's happy. He's happy that Archie the Stomper's back. You know, you just sort of picked up on it. This guy was something special and he had this great history, you know, and then of course, when I'm, uh, when I got more into being a wrestling fan and kind of learned the history and especially when I'm researching the book, I realized that Archie the Stomper Goldie was probably the most consequential, uh, heel, Possibly of all time, Bret Hart. Um, there was a there's a, a great photographer who's passed away, Bob Leonard. He's the kind of official Stampede Wrestling photographer, and he he supplied the photos in my book. Uh, and he talked about it. Like a lot of people, Stu himself. A lot of people thought that Archie DeStomper was the Stampede Wrestling heel. He's he when he came and when he came, he wrestled for a short blip of time in '62, but when he came back full time in '67, he ushered in this sort of golden age of. Uh, of stampede wrestling, like he was, he was a, an important guy. Certainly, the most powerful heel people have seen since like Killer Kowalski in the early fifties in, in Stampede territory.
1: So then, in terms of your your fandom and understanding of of Archie, when you started the research for the book, did that give you any pause to, you know, you there's all this lore and there's all this um all these stories and everything in regards to him. Did it give you any pause to be like, maybe I don't want to dig too much. Into him to keep the mystique, or was it? Oh, I got to know. I need to know even more about him now in terms of research in the book.
6: Oh no! Yeah, I'm a journalist. I want to know everything. <laughs> I wanted. To, I wanted to dig in and get into. I wanted. To, I didn't want to do away with the mystique. I mean, I wanted to express that mystique and that, and just exactly what he meant. But I still wanted to get you know get the story of the real story of Archie. And I, and I actually I have to admit uh, I didn't ever really get a great interview with Archie. It was always he was living in a um tennessee at the time um when i did talk to him i got in with him because i is he was great friends with bob leonard who was a huge help with my book but he kind of you know i never got to talk to him in person it was only on the the phone a couple times and he kind of had that kayfabe mentality like he didn't want to share very much with me a lot lot of the archie stuff that i the best archie stuff that i got comes from other people you know all the, the you know 50s or so interviews I did with other people that talked about Archie. I got a little bit from Archie. He did quotes and, and everything, but he didn't divulge that much to
1: me. And that almost seems to be uh, the story of his wrestling career almost. is, You know, th- there's the wrestler that you see in the ring. Although in Canada, he was very much uh, f- up front and forward with the promos. In the States, totally different character. But, but regardless of the two, he, he was, you know, in the ring, outside the ring, in wrestling, outside of wrestling, just to me comes off as one of the most serious and intense persons about himself. Like, he always seems to be this person who um, presents himself in a very, yeah, just, just a, a very serious, a very... Very serious no matter of fact, guy. yes, no, exactly. I couldn't say it better myself, yeah.
6: yeah he actually he absolutely, and he is that way. I mean, when I spoke to him and from, from the people that knew him well, like he was that way. He was a serious guy, you know. He, he had a lot of respect for the hearts, especially Stu. Stu broke him in the business and everything, but he hated, like, that. you know, you've I don't know if you've heard that the hearts are perpetually late for everything, that yes, so it's sort, <laughs> of a trample. It's sort of a family trait, you know, they, they, they're living on heart time, people say. And uh, and it's true. And Archie was very prompt. He was very punctual. He did not like that. He was off. He was often fuming at them because of stuff like that. You know, he was. Uh, and he, you know, he was never. Um, I mean, I think he would have. A, a, I think Bob Leonard talked about him and Archie having a few beers here and there. But he was a very. He was very serious about his health. I, 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 apparently, like as an old as an old guy, long after he'd, he'd retired, he would bike sixty miles a day. Sometimes, like he was serious about his health. He was serious about about everything. He was uh he was kind of a and right from being a, a young kid he was he was just a very driven, no nonsense, serious, you know, kinda right in your face guy, I think. And
1: you had mentioned naturally that he was broken in by the hearts, who yeah. do who do run on a heart time. <laughs> you are correct about that. <laughs> But yeah. but he had quite the uh, interesting start to his uh, wrestling career. I don't think I've ever oh, quite heard a story like his.
4: It's so cool. Shall I, you want, you want, shall I
1: talk about it? Yeah, and then I'll I'll step over you once in a while. <laughs> but yeah, let's get into it then.
6: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so yeah, I, I'll go right from the start. He grows up. He's an Alberta kid himself. He, you know, Calgary, Alberta is of course the home of Stampede Wrestling. He's he's from Carbon, Alberta. So it's a, a day. It's basically he grew up on a dairy farm and. In the little town of carbon alberta it's i think 75 uh, miles northeast or kilometers northeast of calgary um it, you know he's just right it sounds like right from the start he's just this sort of intense loud brash scrappy sort of kid um he loved wrestling he loved wrestling from an early age he'd go to the matches uh in the early 50s um and you know you kind of had it, thought about becoming a wrestler and had his eyes on the wrestlers and he just loved, loved it. And then um, in his early 20s, this has got to be towards the end of the 50s, he, uh, he comes to Calgary, he moves to Calgary. His, his mother and his wife, they all they move to Calgary. And um, he's working at a service station, and he's playing football on the side. Not CFL, I can't remember the team he's with. But he's, with he's playing football, and he's working at the service station. And he, and he still loves wrestling, and he gets to go to the matches all the time. Uh, and his, his brothers are there, and they're always egging him on, and he's, he's a big, strong boy. And they're like, you know, you should get in there. You should, you know, get in there and fight, take on a wrestler. And at one point, he, he marches up to the ring, grabs the microphone away. I'm not sure if it was Ed Whalen or if it was one of the other announcers over the years at, at, that, at that time. I've heard it was Whalen. But
1: I believe it was heard Whalen, heard, yes.
6: I've heard it was Whalen, but, I, but then sometimes when I look at the timeline, I think, like, well, it wasn't Whalen. But anyway, he grabs the microphone away, and... Al, Murder Mills, and Tiny Mills are going to in the ring. Uh, and these guys are like some of the gray heels of their time. They're legendary as well, and they're legit tough guys. Archie starts yelling into the mic, calling them on.
1: They're like, "An okay, boy, get in the ring. They're, they want to they want, Yeah, because they <laughs> they're going to teach this Mark a lesson. Absolutely, yeah. He's, and he's climbing
6: into the ring to take them on, so he he's, has no fear. Uh, and Completely, you know, believes in himself. Uh, and he's climbing to the ring, and then apparently that first time security or the cops or whatever came running in, and they they drag him out of the ring. And he's ranting and raving, and don't take him on any time. And they're they're heckling him. Uh, and then a couple of weeks later, he comes back and he pulls straight to the ring, coming I think coming after the Mills brothers again. Uh, and Stu grabs him before he gets in the ring, and I guess Stu whispers in his ear. He says to him, "If I let you go, you're dead." And, and Archie, you know, t- gets in his face and he's saying, I'm not scared of you. I'm not scared of those guys in the ring. I want to be a wrestler. I can take on anybody, you know, and, and, and Stu talks him off the ledge. He basically says, well, you know, why don't you, if you think you're, you, can, you got what it takes to be a wrestler, why don't you come to the dungeon? You know, Stu's salivating at this. At this, no, Of course. <laughs> you know? he's, he's, he says, if you think you got what it takes, why don't you come to the dungeon and we'll we'll give you a, you know, we'll try you out. So sure enough, Archie comes to the to the dungeon, and I and I think you you and your listeners know
1: well what happens to people in the dungeon. So and for anybody uh, who is not familiar, and and once again, you have to go back to uh, episode one. Again, my conversation with Heath. Uh, the Heart Dungeon is easily the most infamous and famous, depending on how you look at it. Uh, wrestling, quote unquote, training rooms in history where. Many men have shed many tears, many screams, and uh, other bodily fluids at the hands of Stu Hart. And 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 had their blood
6: vessels broken in their eyes from being squeezed so tight, and yeah, Archie gets the full the full treatment, and I'm sure Stu wanted to hurt him too because of the way he you know the way he behaved at the matches. And you, Stu talked about how he remembered like sticking his head down by his belly button so he couldn't breathe, and just twists him into a pretzel, and he just he just works over Archie well, and Archie. Uh, I, I don't think he left there. I think I don't think he walked out of there. I believe, from what I'm told, he crawled. He crawled out of the dungeon, up those iron stairs, and, and got out of there. And uh, they don't see him again. Steve says, "Okay, another guy that I chased off here, another big shot that thought, thought he was, you know, could take on a wrestler." And uh, they don't see him again for three or four months. And then he comes back. He comes back and he knocks on the door, and and, and he and he's humble and he's polite, and he says to Steve, you, "You know, you taught me a lesson." Please, Mr. Hart, train me. I want to. I want to be a wrestler. So Stu takes him down, and you know, get does the same thing to him week after week after week. Apparently, uh, at the time, he lives uh, five miles, only five miles away from Hart House, uh, with his with his wife and his and his mother. So he, every day he would, you know, or however, however often he would trudge, you know, the five miles through through the you know the frozen snow. You know the snow and the you know, you know the lovely Calgary winter sort of thing. He, he go to the Hard House, uh, you know, get worked over, and, and and then like carries his somehow carries his broken body home. And his mom mom would look at him and say, "There's something wrong with you, boy." And he would keep going back. He keep doing it. He was determined. He wanted to you know he wanted to get in the
1: ring. He wanted to be a wrestler. And uh, sorry, I just want to pause you for one second because yeah. people people who are maybe not from Canada. We'll always hear about you know the infamous Canadian winters and you know having to trudge through s- snow, which is a legitimate thing. But the important thing to realize here as well is Stampede Wrestling was one of the f- very few promotions that had an off-season. They didn't run during the summer. So if he if wanted to get trained, you're getting trained through that fall, obviously the winter, and then the spring. So when, when we're talking about he's walking five miles through harsh conditions... He was walking five miles through harsh conditions with a beat up, battered body, in part thanks to Sue Hart.
6: Yeah, it's it's really it's really something. Um, Keith Hart has a f- really funny story that I'll share.
1: Oh yes, <laughs> I know Fun, exactly which one you're talking yeah, about.
6: Yeah, Keith Hart remembers watching Archie get, get, you know, get just the hell beaten out of him by his dad, uh, and he remembers. I guess at one point Stu puts him in in a in a double grapevine type of hold, and in the struggle getting this on him, he winds up you know heels him, kicks him, and he actually kicks him in the nuts. He sticks his, he jams his heel right into his nuts, and uh, you know beats the hell out of him. And Archie you know crawls back to the bench and in agony. Uh, and, and, uh, Stu, and Keith is there, you know. Keith is probably a teenager or something at the time. Archie uh, looks at him and he says, "Hey, kid, you ever seen a swollen nut before?" And like, look, 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 look at your old man done to me. And he pulls his, he pulls his shorts aside, he pulls his trunks aside, and, and Keith, you know, still thought he remembers this black and blue nut, you know, testicle swollen <laughs> with the size of a coconut, and uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that he, he went through um to become a wrestler and they broke so he get finally in 1962 they give him a shot and they let him come in you know then he go, comes into the ring but he doesn't uh i don't know if Stu doesn't believe in him or, or if he thinks he has to prove he, you know archie's got to prove himself somewhere else but they bring him in and at first he's sort of just a jobber like he's not doing much he's, he doesn't have a lot of promise they're not they're not pushing him and he gets fed up and he winds up going to the the southern United States, and and you know, doing and wrestling there, and kind of making a name for himself there. And that's when he become they developed this whole Mongolian stomper uh, gimmick for him there, where he you know he's he's this sort of mute. Mongo, uh, Bob Leonard used to joke and say, you know, he's the only a Scottish Mongolian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if they, if they you know he grows this this. Um, like pony, this kind of ponytail on the, the, the base of his skull, basically.
1: Then he had the um, Fu Manchu as well, correct? Yeah, he had
6: yes. The Fu and he's mute. I think later maybe they let the Mongolian Stomper talk. I, I don't. I'm not positive, but 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 earlier he's a mute Mongolian and he's this killing machine. But he makes a name for himself as this gigantic heel. Um, to the point, and then and then the tables turn a little bit. And in '67, uh, Stu's you know business has been bad. the, the, the mid '60s. Uh, it was a real lean time for Stampede Wrestling. If you look at the cards from the period and stuff, they're not that impressive. Um, so Stu's hurting, and he's trying to revamp the business a little bit. He, they they kind of relaunched themselves with the Stampede Wrestling logo before that. They were big-time wrestling, and then they were Wildcat Wrestling. Uh, but, you know, this kid he trained now is a big star in the South, so he, then he, he coaxes Archie back.
1: Okay, so there's there's one thing that you had brought up, and it kind of ties into an ongoing theme that I've been kind of trying to dig into in regards to kind of the, the lore of Archie Goldie. Because you'll read in articles, I'm not saying all of them, but you'll read quite often that he was temperamental or hard to deal with. And from everybody that I've talked to, and... Other interviews that I've read, it doesn't necessarily seem to be that case, except for the fact that we talked previously that he always took himself very seriously. I wonder how much of that um, perception of him being, you know, quote unquote difficult started with him leaving Stampede Wrestling being unhappy about how he was being used in the original run.
6: Maybe, uh, but I think, you know, I think any wrestler would do that. I mean, I think that's what, that's what it was It was expected of wrestlers back in the day. You get started and, you know, you know, you got to go from territory to territory and start to pr- sort of prove yourself. And for whatever reason, Stu didn't give him a reason to prove himself or didn't give him the, the you know, opportunity to prove himself in the early sixties. Um,
1: but he and, sure had a reason to in the late seventies.
6: Yeah, he sure did. Um, and. Yeah, you do hear. Like he did have a temper. He did. He he wanted. You know, he was very meticulous. He was very clean. Like his uh, Keith Hart described, his socks and his trunks were always perfectly clean. Like he was his. You know, his gym bag. He never smelled bad. His gym bag was always like just meticulous. You know, was 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 you know meticulous. He was very meticulous about everything. He wanted to be on time. He wanted things to be a certain way. Um, and he and he was tough. And he was and when things didn't go his way, he really he those are the times when people fit he lose his temper people and and you know infamously with billy robinson again i'm just probably jumping ahead in the, the story of archie here but you know one one infamous time is his his work with billy robinson in 69 i
1: believe well okay so naturally he comes back to the territories he's now he's established himself but what's interesting when he comes back because as we had previously discussed He's down in the States, he's a mute, he's relying on managers down there to be his mouthpieces, and he just goes and and just annihilates people. Comes back up to Canada, and then now you're seeing him speak and he's he's delivering these just stone-cold killer promos that just scare the hell out of everybody.
6: Oh yeah, I don't understand why in the South They wouldn't. They, you know, they kind of made Archie the mute because he was fantastic on the mic. Uh, You know, you know, he he, when he came to to Calgary, they they don't go with the Mongolian stomper gimmick. They they go with you know Archie the stomper Goldie, and they kind of make him a cowboy. He starts wearing these these cowboy boots, size thirteen. His cowboy boots, the, which you know he stomps, the, and that's his thing. He
1: stomps his, you know, his opponents into a bloody paste. And and, j- and just uh, sorry to pause you for a second, but yeah. when we're when we're talking about he stomps the hell of his opponents, like there's video that you can watch on YouTube. Some is hard to watch because he legitimately yeah. beats the living hell out of his opponents. Stomps, stomps their heads, stomps their yeah. bodies, stomps their hands. It's crazy. Stomping
6: them. He, they call for Stalker stopper for a reason. And, you know, and they give him that, uh, uh, the vest with, uh, the, the, the,
1: you know. With the, the lasso, right? Well, on the back? The horseshoe on the back. Yeah, that, oh, the horseshoe, yes.
6: They kind of, yes. They kind of, yeah, they kind of make him up into, into, into a cowboy. And they, and they let him be on the mic. They let him talk. And he delivers a hell of a promo. Like, he's this, he's this sort of wild, loud, threatening, just seething cauldron of rage. He's got this, this piercing, intense piercing, you know, it looks straight into the camera, and you see you. You know, you know, it, it's it's terrifying and to to be in the ring with him, it, or to you know to meet him in a dark alley would be would be an absolute nightmare. You know, just through the TV, he's got this. He just commands the, you know, commands fear and respect, uh, and yeah, and he's got that same brutal style where he just destroys people in the ring, and they really build him up to be this. Uh, you know, and Stamp and snappy Wrestling is rebranding itself at this time. They're rebranding themselves with the Stampede Wrestling label. They've created a new uh, belt, their, their new staple belt, which is the North American heavyweight title. And Archie's the first guy to win the North American heavyweight title, and he wins it 14 times between 68 and, and uh, 84. Um, but he's such a powerful uh, heel, just a, such a terrifying heel. He really invigorates, reinvigorates the, the territory. And he kind of ushers in what a lot of people would consider to be the golden age of uh, stampede wrestling.
1: And, w- and just to uh, further dig into the, f- the impressiveness of his North American heavyweight record run, like 14 times between, well, essentially it's a 20-year span. And yeah, he was the first one to win it. I think he had some of the longest reigns as well with it. So you got to figure like, Within a 20-year span, it's almost every year that Archie the Stomper is a champion at one point or another.
6: Well, and except, though, there's this huge uh, uh, period of time. I can't remember now when... I'm not clear as to when the last time he's... Because he leaves the territory again for a long time. Yes. Um, He's he's there from 67, I think, to about 74, 75. Then he disappears again, and he doesn't come back until um, '80. Three, so there's this large period. So, so those fourteen win title reigns, um, most of them are, are concentrated in the '70s. So he had it for yeah long periods of time. And some of his uh, feuds uh, in the '70s are just unforgettable. Like this, uh, I wish there was more footage of it. Uh, but it just, it, it's just it's just incredible. But what you do see is incredible. Like he, his feuds with Stu Hart, uh, Abdullah the Butcher, Harley Race, um, the Tor Kamada, Dan uh, Dan Crawford, who you spoke to. Uh, sweet daddy siki dave rule ox baker waldo von eric these are some of the people he's trading titles back and forth with as well um and uh yeah and and back to the yeah there's another story i wanted to tell um that kind of really reflects what an intense terrifying promo he would give too Bret hart tells this story about being being 11 years old um and you know, I think Archie just destroyed his dad on TV one time, you know, and Brett watched it. Uh, and and and, and st- st- uh, he does a you know, he does an interview with Ed Whalen afterwards, and he's and he's raving and raging, and he's talking about he's going to come to the hard house and tear it down brick by brick, and he's gonna <laughs> stewart limb from limb. And the great the kicker. He says that he's going to get Helen Hart, you know, the heart matriarch, Stu's wife. He's going to take Helen Hart and he's going to pile drive her on the interstate. <laughs> and then, and uh, Brett hears this and he's terrified. And at that point, like they were in the dark about the business, the kids were kept in the dark. They didn't understand the way the business worked. When they saw their dad get beat up on TV, they thought it was, you know, they thought it was the real deal. So, you know, Brett's terrified. He's shaken by by the by what the Stompers said. Then the very next day um there's a, a, a ding dong goes the doorbell helen hart answers the door <laughs> answers the door there's archie the star first
4: there.
6: <laughs> uh red heart is terrified he runs into the key you know the the their big dining room and hides under the dining room table uh and then he went but then he's 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 so confused because you know helen hart's like archie darling you know, got that new york yeah 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 and she gives him a big hug he comes in and they have tea and coffee you know they have coffee and cake and and they're having a nice old conversation. And uh, and then, you know, Brett kind of wises up to the business at that point. But he remembers being absolutely terrified. Uh, I think at one point Brett said that, uh, maybe, maybe it wasn't Brett. Somebody talked about how, in, in a lot of ways, Archie was sort of the Goldberg of his day, before Goldberg. Remember how intense Goldberg used yes. to be? And how, yeah, that, he, he was that. So that's the sort of intensity that Archie the Stomper brought with him.
1: And when we're talking about beat up his dad, like, he beat from pillar to post uh, Stu Hart. Broke his arm, I believe, as well, as yeah, part of the story. So. Yeah. Too. Oh yeah, just, he is a mess. Just absolutely, dis- and here's his dad, who's the owner of the promotion, who's, you know, a larger than life, he's essentially a living legend in Calgary, and he just gets completely wiped out by Archie, and then here's Archie having tea with his mom a couple days later. It's tremendous. <laughs> and, uh,
6: it's just a story that I love. And, you know, he's talking about pile-driving Helen on the <laughs> How much more, how much more uh, savage could you get, right? <laughs> so you understand why Brett was, young Brett was terrified.
1: So, and we had kind of talked about it previous to this, but let's talk about the Billy Robinson episode, because this wow. as well, and again, we're... we're Digging a little bit deeper into this this uh, seriousness in the way that Archie carries himself. So, for those who may not know, because again, a large portion of our uh, listenership are not wrestling fans at all, but they love to hear the stories. So, Billy Robinson is a British wrestler, and he's a big deal over there. And he comes over here into Calgary, and gets put, was he put in the feud immediately with Archie?
6: was immediately or if he had to work his way into it I, I'm not clear about you know the way the trajectory of that worked but but they were setting up for a, it was a it was going to be a big feud with Billy Robinson and, and Archie Stomper and the winner of the feud was going to take on um, the world champion Dory Funk Jr. That's right when he was coming to town for the Calgary Stampede and the Calgary Stampede in Stampede Wrestling was essentially the, their Wrestlemania that was the big like Andre the Giant would come to town the world champions would come to town um, you know, you'd get these special guest referees that were all retired boxers and stuff, but that was the big deal for Stampede Wrestling. So Arch, and I believe the way it was supposed to work out was that Archie was going to come be the victorious one and he was going to take on Dory Funk Jr. But Billy Robinson had a, had a uh, you know, bad reputation for being, you know, working really stiff if he wanted, if he didn't like you, um, being really arrogant. And, and he worked he worked he Archie worked with Archie really stiff, and he also wouldn't sell. He wouldn't sell. But he wouldn't sell his blows. He wouldn't, you know. And he would act like it didn't didn't hurt him. And and, and uh, they they just did not click in the ring. Uh, and they, you know, and uh, I think Billy's kind of sort of who was a great, you know, a great um, a great legit wrestler. Stretched him and everything. And uh, and Archie was furious. And at the end of one of their matches, he came back back into the dressing room, threw his boots against the. Uh, uh, in, against the wall, and he left. He left. The he left. Doesn't matter what the angle was going to be, what the plans were going to be. He left the territory, and he didn't come back for the rest of that year. This was in nineteen sixty nine. So Billy Robinson wound up taking on Dory Funk. But that's sort of indicative of the kind of temper Archie could have, if you, if you, if you, you know, if you messed with him, if you played around with him.
1: And that's not the first or the last time that he would do something like that. There's stories about him being in. Uh, Southeast, him being in Mid-South, where if there was something that was happening or if he felt that he was being disrespected by either his opponent or the office, he would just pack up and leave. I believe yeah. that there was a story in Southeast where it was in the middle of w- middle of one of his matches and uh I, I'm going to get the story wrong and I apologize if I do. Somebody will correct me, I'm sure. Send your hate tweets to at6 underscore podcast. It's okay. <laughs> But I believe the story was that uh, the promoter had asked Archie to go and shoot on his opponent because the his opponent had done something to the promoter and the the guy was pissed so he was trying to get... essentially send Archie in to settle a score in the ring. And Archie said, nope, not doing that. Rolled out of the ring, walked out of the arena. I don't think he set foot back in the territory.
6: That sounds like the kind of thing he would do. He was... he was uh... When he set his mind to something, nothing was going to turn him around. I mean, if you think about it, walking away from the Billy Robinson thing—even if Robinson was making him look like it, you know, look bad in the ring and wasn't cooperating—I mean, this is a shot. He, this was going to be him and Dory Funk Jr. Like that's a major deal. And he just said he wasn't putting up with ro- what Robinson, had, you know, was doing, and he's gone. He wasn't going to put up with it. And yeah, that does sound like stuff that you know that does sound uh, in line with what we hear about Archie.
1: So there's obviously he had a very storied career, you know, back and forth from Stampede going uh, down to the southern states, especially Uh, he spent some time in Japan. He spent some time in Australia as well. Now, when he comes back to Stampede in the 80s and you start to get your first taste of him, that also kind of leads us to another story that we had kind of prefaced before this. Uh, the big event that happened in 1984, yeah, So once again, uh, this is something that we had touched on very briefly during uh, episode one, the Stu Hart and Stampede Wrestling episode that you had graciously joined me on. But let's dig a little bit deeper into what happened that night, and then really what the aftermath was. Sure,
6: because right? it's one of the most consequential things in Stampede Wrestling history, certainly.
1: And wow. and more than that, unfortunately, because of revisionist history from we'll just say certain organizations it's one of those things that kind of gets overlooked as oh it's just that thing that happened in Canada nobody saw it so we're going to dispel a lot of that right here
6: uh, yeah I mean whatever what do you say what you want about the revisionist history this is one of the most this was an amazing angle and the whole the way it went down Kind of blew up in in the the hard space though here's what happened so basically they, they bring archie uh, back you know and the territory is red hot in in the early 80s uh after you know archie left the territory uh, i think around 74 75 because things were it was the territory was going into another slump uh not very good cards not very good guys coming i think just archie saw the writing in the wall and he you know he was a much hotter draw in the south and he wanted to go back south and you know, do other things. So he left Stampede Wrestling, didn't come back for a long time. And then the the Dynamite Kid in 78 comes along. He reignites the territory and and, and much the way Archie did in 67. um, Gets it, you know, the territory red hot and, you know, other talents start coming in and the territory is just on a huge, great high point at this point. And, And so Stu, I think, coaxes Archie to come back into the territory. And uh, Bruce Hart, Stu's son, is running, he's doing a lot of the creative at that time. He's, he's kind of got this vision, vision for how he wants to bring Stampede Wrestling into the future and, and into the 80s. And he often winds up in conflict with his dad and his brothers over it too. But Bruce had some great ideas, and this was, this is one of his greatest ideas. So they bring Archie to the territory, the, the, the huge heel of the time, the, the, the absolute menacing heel uh, in the early 80s in Stampede Wrestling. Same way Archie had been in the, in the in the early '70s was Bad News Allen. Bad News Allen was uh, much like he, he was intense, so intense on the mic. He had this intense, terrifying stare. Uh, he was just brutal in the ring. He he destroyed Bret Hart. He destroyed Dynamite Kid. He destroyed everybody he came across. You know, he had this killer, this insane feud with David Schultz. Um, he was he was just a, he was he was a he was a force. He was terrifying. And so he was the monster heel of of of, of current, stuff, you know, of the early '80s. And then they bring in the monster heel of the early '70s. Uh, and at first, they team the guy, they, they they team the two of them up. You know, they're they're two they're two bad guys. They're obviously going to be buddies, right? They're going to be friends. And uh, and then they, they have this other sort of little side angle cooked up where Archie brings with them uh, his supposed son Jeff Golden, who's this. Who's this rookie wrestler? I think his name is Tommy Dalton from Georgia. He's eighteen years old, and he's this rookie. Nobody's ever heard of. But they bring him in as Jeff Goldie and This is the son. This is the stopper's son, who he's breaking into the business. So there's that little side thing going on, um, and you know, so Archie comes along. He's there for a few months, and he he go he has feuds with Bret Hart and and everybody as well. Uh, and then and him and Donnie's Island are friends. Uh, and then they, there's a, a I think, geez. I don't get the date wrong here. I believe you might know it better than me right now. It's December second, nineteen eighty-three, that this the, the, this fateful match happens. It's December second or December fourth? It's
1: December second, uh, yes.
6: Is it December second? Yes. Yeah, uh, so it's, it's a it's a it's a six-man tag tag team. Archie the Stomper, uh, Jeff Goldie, and Bad News Allen are, are against uh, Bret Hart, Davey Boy Smith, and uh, Sonny Two Rivers. And it's a great match. It's a it's a great you know he, heel versus babyface match. Uh, the babyfaces pretty much got destroyed if, if I if recall it right. Uh, but then after they're sort of they're they're like not even a part of the story because bad news Allen double crosses the Stomper. Uh, his his you know his Japanese warlord manager uh, Wakamatsu comes to the ring with his kendo sta kendo stick, and uh, another heel Carrie Brown comes into the ring, and they you know they. They they hit they hit Archie from behind. They take him down. Um, they they calf rope him to a ring post. Um, Bad News Allen. This is one of his big things. He takes out a fork and starts raking it across Archie's head. So yes. He, you know, it gets to it some juice. Um, you know, Brett Davy Boy. They've dissipated at this point. Um, and then he takes the you know the little rookie whelp son Jeff Goldie. Takes him outside the ring. Bad News Allen does pile drives him on the on the concrete. And, you know, essentially, you know, according to the, to, you know, the angle breaks his neck and Archie is flipping out. He's, he's tied to the calf. to the, He's tied. He's calf rope to the ring post. And he's, he's pulling on the ring post and he's freaking out. news: um, Allen gets back into the ring and, and there's absolute pandemonium. Like these guys pulled this off with such uh, precision, just so, so beautifully. The crowd buys it. They absolutely buy it. And they go nuts so, uh, 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 actually, um, there's a little riot in, in the Victoria Pavilion this night. Um, at, an old man comes up and it hits Bad News Allen with his cane. And Bad News Allen grabbed the guy by the throat and he throttles him. He says, you don't touch me, old man. Your ticket doesn't give you the right to put your hands on me.
1: Uh, Which further back incenses back. everyone.
6: Yeah, further because he's beating up an old man. here. He gets back in the ring. And it, it, you can see this on YouTube. And anybody who thinks this, this is just some Canadian thing that didn't matter, I mean, it's one of the greatest, I think it's one of the greatest wrestling moments of all time. Bad News Allen is, he's screaming at Archie, he's, screaming, he's saying, you know, I crippled your son, I helped him die, I ended his career, Archie's flipping out, and Ed Whalen, who often had conflict with the Hart family, Ed Whalen wanted it to be family entertainment, um, and he didn't want the violence, and he was sort of, he was a, he wasn't just an announcer, he was like, he had he held a lot of power because he was he was you know he was a newscaster he was the he was the head he was a big name at the at the station where the Stampede Wrestling ran he was a sportscaster he he was you know he was the voice of the Calgary Flames he was a big guy in Calgary
1: and he, he was, would sort I don't I don't mean to cut you off too but he uh, would he was also big in terms of the production of the actual television show yeah and so, and he, and, he, and there was yeah, many times where. If something was going to make air that he didn't like, he would edit it off. And I I know that that had caused conflict for quite a few wrestlers.
6: Very much so. Yeah. In fact, in the 70s, there was an, in the mid 70s, there was a point where he left for a while because he thought it was too violent, too bloody. And he only came back because Stu agreed to, you know, kind of to get, get it, get away from that a little bit and get back more into the, you know, the old, old, old timey wrestling. But Ed Welland's disgusted by what's happened here. He's disgusted by this. Um, but this riot that's happened—he's, uh, you know, he's—he's he's a, like I say, he's a—he's a respected figure in town. He doesn't want to be attached to this. I think it hurts his reputation when things get this out of hand. And the hearts never really clued him in as to what was going to happen in the ring, too. So he wasn't wise to what was going to go, what was going to go on. Now whether he believed th- that what happened to Jeff Goldie, or he was just—he was just disgusted by the way. By the way, the angle had gone and the way the whole night went to, went to hell. It's hard to say. But uh, he, he was disgusted. And he, yeah, he, he's, he does his interview with Bad News Allen. And, and then they cut away. They cut away. It goes, you know, they, they won't air it anymore. And then at the end of the show, he's in the ring. Everybody's cleared out of the pavilion. Uh, it, it, it's darkened. It's, it's, it's Ed Whalen and Archie the Stomper. And there's just a, a sort of a spotlight in the ring. Uh, and it's just this dark, quiet interview, and, and and Archie the Stomper, who we're used to being this raving lunatic in the ring, he's he's quiet. He's he's like a, he's a depressed man. He's slumped over. It's just brilliant. Like for anybody that said he couldn't do, do a promo, he slumped over the you know the, the the ropes, and he's he's regretful and he's mournful and he's sad and he's and he's, re, he's he's expressing regret that he ever got his kid into the wrestling business, and now his son's crippled. And uh, it's just this amazing, and it's such a contrast to the ranting, raving promo that uh, that Bad News Allen had just done too. And then Stomper comes, somber and sad, and uh, but then the intensity builds up. But he never raises his voice. But he's got that intense stare. And he yes, in and he says, no, "I'm gonna," you know, he he vows revenge on Bad News Allen essentially. Uh, and after after and then after he leaves. Ed Whalen expresses his disgust at the whole night. It's what at what's gone down. And he he drops his mic and he quits. He says, I'm this is this, you know, this is the last time I'm in Stampede Wrestling. I can't remember what exactly he said. But he retire he on the air, he quits. And you take that, what a major figure, respected figure Wh- Whalen was in the community. Plus, you know, the violence that happened, the fact that Bad News Allen got in an altercation with a fan, the media totally turns on, uh, on stamp on stampede wrestling. Uh, the boxing and wrestling commission turns on stampede wrestling. Uh, bad news. Allen's fu- is fine. But like this, this, this is brilliant angle. It's going to be, it should have been like King Kong versus Godzilla. You know, like the, the The monster, the monster versus monster. Monster, monster. monster, monster. It should have been the King Kong versus Godzilla. It should have packed, packed the arenas. Um, it, and it, I, 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 always equate it to, uh, you know, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, like when, you know, the story of he's, he's reading War of the Worlds on the air, it, it's, it's such a, he, he reads it in such a way that people are freaked out. People actually think that there's a, <laughs> the Mar-
1: yeah, a Mar- and they're Mar- phoning 911 and everything else.
6: Yeah, exactly. And, and this is what happened. The public buys into this. They, they don't see it as, even though, like, I think in the 80s, you know, it wasn't, I think a lot of people saw wrestling as, you know, a sort of quote unquote fake. But people buy this, and the, and the media, who should know better, buys into it, and, uh, and they call for a stew to be suspended, and, and the, the Boxing and Wrestling Commission levies all these fines on him. He almost loses his TV license. Um, he, he pays all these fines. Bad News Allen is, is incredibly, you know, hammered the fines as well. Um, all told, Stu winds up losing $300,000. He, he loses the, – the big, the big kicker is – uh, the Boxing and Wrestling Commission, Calgary Boxing and Wrestling Commission, takes away his his license, so he can't promote Calgary shows. So for the big uh, Bad News Allen Archie Stomper match, they have to take it out to um, uh, the Sarsie Reserve. It's a, it's a First Nations reserve outside of just outside of Calgary. They have to take it there. It's the dead of winter. You know, people that people love going to the Victoria Pavilion. They don't want to go all the way out to the Sea Reserve, and there's all this media. Shade thrown at thrown at the business and stuff. And anyway, it doesn't wind up being what it's supposed to be. They have this big strap match at the uh, at the uh, what was the name of the, the arena? Anyway, I don't, I can't remember the name of the arena right now. But it, but they, but it's just not what it's supposed to be. You know, it should have been this huge deal, but instead it becomes this sort of it. It kind of almost cripples Stu at this time when he when he when he's. You know he, he loses three hundred thousand dollars, and at, this is around the same time that Vince McMahon began sniffing into the territory yes. of uh, out Stampede Wrestling, and he's and he's taking such a blow from from what the way this match goes down. So sorry, I've gone into this huge tangent, but it really I'm just trying to get across how consequential this is. This uh, this whole Bad News Allen Stomper thing was for Stampede Wrestling, and how it it, it led to you know them shutting their doors.
1: And not only that, it was also essentially the end of the biggest or the last big run, the like end of it for Archie Goldie. Yes, he did some other time in, like I know he was in Smoky Mountain in the early nineties, for example, for a while, and he you know he wrestled some other independents. But in terms of like a big money making feud, which this, for all intents and purposes, was going to be until it kind of went off the rails intentionally or otherwise uh it just kind of you know this one you know idea this one feud this one whatever you want to call it not only cripples stampede wrestling which then forces a sale to Vince it essentially ends the the last big run of Archie the you know Archie the Stomper it it just it changes the course of wrestling history in a way that I feel a lot of people just don't they don't grasp the gravity of how how different things could have been if if this all didn't happen if it would have in an alternate universe if this had gone off without a hitch and they had had the matches the way they were supposed to be presented and this feud the way it was supposed to be presented without meddling from and you know say what you will about the athletic commission but that was unfortunately their prerogative at the time especially yeah. with the increased media uh presence and uh, and vitriol, so it just uh, it's incredible this it's not, and we had said this already it's not, it was not an inconsequential you know, oh it just happened well, in Canada, this changed a lot of stuff
6: yeah, it was hugely consequential, if if if, if that hadn't happened and Stu had this, was sitting on it and the territory was hotter than ever he might have been able, when Vince came around when Vince McMahon starts sniffing around and wanting to buy the territory from him he might have been able to say, no, I'm, I'm. we're doing just fine here. We don't need you sort of thing. But as it was, he was, you know, he was hurt. He was, he was, there was a, he was in a bad way. He had Helen Hart in his ear saying, I can't take this anymore. We got to end this dude. You're losing money here. You're hemorrhaging money. Um, so this kind of, this makes him take the deal from Vince and the deal from Vince includes, and it, which to, Vince totally reneges on and, and you know, the heart's, not come out ahead in this deal at all but one of the things vince one of the deals vince makes is um uh, i'll take uh, i i'll you know i'll, I'll poach you some of your top talent so I, so he wants bret hart Dynamite kid davey boy smith and jim neidhart and i mean um you well know and your fans well know how huge this is the british bulldogs and the Hart foundation bret hart goes on to be the you know the world you know one of the most one of the hugest wrestlers of all time, you know, this, them going to the WWF at that time. I mean, yeah, things had gone down differently. A lot of that might not have happened or it might have happened in a different order sort of thing. Which yes. Could have caused the, you know, what's the, what's the, uh, the butterfly effect thing or whatever, you know, it could have changed. It could have changed the course of uh, the course of how things went in wrestling history, not just in stampede wrestling history, but wrestling history.
1: So naturally that was, um, uh... A big and big is even a poor choice of words to to describe the but such a monumental moment for for the career of Archie Goldie. Um naturally that was kind of it for his real run in Calgary. I know that he had made like some appearances and, and whatnot years prior to that, or years yes, afterwards, but um unfortunately like he so he doesn't make Calgary his his home after, right? Because he, like I said, he spent some time in Smoky Mountain. He ends up moving to Knoxville, and that's where he ends up living. While he was living in in Knoxville, was there was there anybody in Calgary that was you know trying to you know research what was going on with him? Was there was there this? I'm I guess what I'm trying to ask is, when he had left Calgary, was he just kind of gone and forgotten?
6: I hate to say it, but in a lot of ways he was like, I, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole era of people that remember Archie DeStomper and they know how huge he was. But, um, I mean, in Calgary, just me was sort of keeping him alive and knew, new, you know, in terms of the, the media, at least knew I was the person who knew how, what a huge deal this guy was. And, and like when he passed away, I, you know, he, that should have been a big story in Calgary, but at that point, you know, I don't, I no longer work in, 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 print journalism, I wasn't in, I'm not in the media at this point, uh, so, you know, when he passed away, I almost wanted to call them, you know, I almost wanted to say to them, like, this is a big deal, but the CBC did something on him, uh, thank God, but, but yeah, I mean, the Calgary Herald, even the Calgary Sun, which was sort of the wrestling paper, they didn't really, they didn't do anything to mark the occasion, they didn't do, you know, they it's, like he, it's
1: sort of like he was forgotten, and I think it, it, it's a real shame. I always... Wonder if that's because, like, I wonder if he if he would have been, you know, f- and forgotten is such a horrible th- way to say it too. And I, I don't yeah, mean I, I, don't I, that
6: either. I. It makes me queasy to think. Of it yeah. have forgotten, but he
1: I, just didn't get his due. Okay. Um, yes, I'll go with that yeah. for sure. Yeah, and I mean clearly, I mean no disrespect with the way I'm saying it. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if it would have been a situation where he would have been more uh, recognized, remembered, however, whatever connotation you want to put on it, if he had moved back to Calgary, for example, because you, you always, you, you know, especially with the Hart family, because, you know, they, you know, quote unquote, made it big and then stayed in Calgary, essentially, (laughs) or, or you hear about, you'll hear about other, um, you know, big names that make it big. And then they go back home to settle after, whereas, you know, Archie made it big, also predominantly made it big in the states, and then chose to move there. So I wonder if that kind of affects his it's legacy like maybe, as well.
6: Possibly, like maybe if he had been in, um, if he had been in Calgary when he passed, you know, the media would have latched onto it a little bit better. He would have been, for you know, kind of front and center a little bit more. For example, like when Bad News Allen died, um, the media did make a big they did make a big deal of the death of bad news Allen, but I, you know, I'm not trying to be egotistical here or anything, but the reason they did is because I was there and I said, this is a big deal. This guy just died. We got to do something on it. And so, you know, we did do a big story on bad news Island, what he had meant to the territory and, and same when Torquemada died. Uh, and he wasn't living in Calgary, actually. I believe he was living in Saskatoon. So, but, but again, it's cause it's because, you know, I was sort of the wrestling historian that, that sort of was like, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. But I wasn't doing it anymore when Archie passed. And I always did feel bad about that, that he didn't get the, the sort of the due he should have should have gotten. And I think the other thing that, that sort of didn't cement his legend the way it should have, um, I think it's it's a shame. He, time just wasn't on his side. But I, if he could have done a great WWF run, Maybe he was too old at that point. Maybe by the mid-'80s, it just wouldn't have worked. Maybe they would have just – I would hate to think of, see them, you know, treat him as a jobber or something like that. But if they, if they had given him a proper push, I mean, he could have been – he, he would have been amazing. And I think that would have cemented his legend a lot more. And then you can bet, you better believe that, you know, the news – there would have been a big – he would have been hailed more when he, when he died.
1: Do you know if there's anything in Carbon that is, like, is there any kind of memorial there, or is there, a, is there anything there in not the in my, the city? Not to my knowledge. I think Carbon's... And I, and and I, I realize that Carbon's, it's like 600 people or something like that.
6: Yeah, no, I don't even know if it's that anymore. I, mean, <laughs> I may be speaking out of turn here, and I, I've even dug around a little bit, just, just on my own accord, just to see if there's any of his surviving relatives in Carbon or anything like that. And to my knowledge, there isn't, and if I'm wrong, and Somebody wants to beat me up on that, or that's okay. Or if you want to educate me on it, I'd love to. I, I'd love to know more about um, if if still got people in Carbon. And I, but to my knowledge, though, there's not some, you know, there's not like there's not an Archie the Stomper statue in Carbon or anything like that. There should be, but there isn't.
1: Well, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. There
6: should, be, there should be. one in the Calgary Stampede grounds. It's it's always it, it always annoys me immensely as well. Like the the Calgary Stampede is such a huge Calgary institution and, and uh, stampede wrestling was such a great part of that. And you're in the, from the fifties, sixties, right through the seventies and even the eighties. Um, that was a ma- that was a big attraction of the Calgary stampede. They'd have this big stampede wrestling, you know, the big, their sort of WrestleMania of the year would take place during the Calgary stampede and they'd be in the stampede parade, the wrestlers and everything. And it was always, it was a pretty big deal. You know, Andre the giant would come to town. These were major draws, And, uh, you know the, the Calgary Stampede. I don't think kind of recognizes way really they should either. Like they should have, just like they've got the, the various cowboys and rodeo people and stuff immortalized in, the, in their their records. They should have wrestlers immortalized too, but they don't. So,
1: which is that's a shame too, because uh, yeah. uh, that's you don't... Stu.
6: they remember Stu. Like there's a but, but that's it. You know, and it should be. It should. They should get more. Archie should get more.
1: Well, hopefully programs like this will will maybe start to sway some public opinion and we'll see what happens with it. I
6: Yeah.
1: It's worth a shot at least.
6: I would love to see it. I would love to see it.
1: Alright, so before I let you go for the night, uh, what's uh, what's on the horizon for yourself? Um you
6: know what? I'm not in the I'm actually not at liberty to say. There's something that could be exciting on the horizon, but it's sort of in the in the planning st- phases right now. So I can't uh, talk about that. I'm kind of retired as a as a journalist right now. I, I I'm not saying I will. I'm forever retired, or that I'll never write another book, uh, or that I'll never you know publish another magazine article. But I've sort of um, you know i sort of moved on from it. I, I I got out of print the print media business because it's
1: sort of it's such a you know it's titanic now yeah it's it's not what it used to be and i didn't want to be a part of it anymore i work at a
6: i work at the university of calgary now and i I handle their media and communications and and that's where you know i've got a big family that's my focus now i'm not i don't have any there is something in the works which i can't talk about but other than that um yeah i don't i'm not doing a lot well if i hope people people buy pain and passion You, uh,
1: you can get it on uh you know, Amazon's probably the best place to get it. But it still sells. It's still There's still a lot of interest in it. And naturally, all links for that will be included with the uh, show notes for this episode as well. And if your other project does come to fruition, I'm sure uh, many of us will be very interested to see what it is.
6: Okay. I'll, I'll keep my fingers crossed as well. <laughs> anyway, <yeah. laughs> we're, we're,
1: we're just going to will this thing into existence. That's all it's going to be. Right. All right, Heath. Absolute pleasure having you on. I can't thank you enough for all your time. Thanks a lot. Now, before I bring in my final guest of the evening, I'm going to play some more classic Stampede Wrestling audio. Now, this clip is from the aforementioned Calgary Riot incident. So, in this clip, you're going to hear the direct aftermath of Bad News Allen pilot driving Archie Goldie's quote-unquote son And then you're going to hear a really long interview from Archie Goldie. Now we kind of set this up and I think we did a very good job actually setting this up in my conversation with Heath, but this is Archie as nobody had ever heard him before. And it's really, really impactful. And this really further cements the supposition that I started at the beginning of this program where I, said that he is very much he being Archie Goldie is very much one of the most underappreciated and really unfortunately today forgotten names in professional wrestling history and uh, interviews like the one that you're gonna hear next really further uh, cement my thoughts and uh, and understanding of him Uh, both in terms of his uh, in-ring persona and him as a a big thinker, which is another topic that I'm going to be covering a little bit more with the next guest on the program. So the next guest that I'm going to have up. And this interview is a little bit different than some of the other ones that you've heard, because we kind of jump right into it, and there's a little bit of a reason for that. So I'll preface all of this by saying my next interview is with uh, Dan Crawford. Cowboy Dan Crawford. Now, Stampede Wrestling fans will remember him as one of the biggest stars in Stampede Wrestling. Ooh, in the late 60s into the 70s for sure. uh, Wrestled some in the 80s. I think he retired about 85. But a massive star in Stampede Wrestling. Certainly a big star in America as well. And he has fascinating insights into both Archie and professional wrestling but more than that he has incredible insights into personalities and people in real life situations and it's I'm not gonna go too much into it because I, I I don't want to build it up too much what I think is going to be very impactful for everybody to hear. Now, of note, our conversation had started about 20 minutes before what you're going to hear in this program. A lot of what we had talked about in that portion, which I'm leaving out of this program, was regarding uh, COVID-19. Now, I understand that this is a big thing that everybody is still dealing with in the world. Certainly, where he is uh, in Alberta, it's a big issue. I didn't really want, and this was a hard decision for me to make. I just want to make this implicitly clear. I I thought about this for days, whether or not to include uh, that portion of our conversation. Not that there was anything polarizing or not that there was anything bad about it, just for the simple fact that I realized that people are using this program and things like it, but specifically listen to my program clearly, but, uh, things like this to kind of get the escape from what's happening around the world and what's happening in their own backyard. So I was really back and forth with it for a long time. He, it was incredible. I'm just going to put it at that. Uh, it was a great conversation However, I've chose to leave that part out only because I understand that people are looking for a bit of an escape and I don't want to bog down every program and everything that you hear with this specter of COVID-19. So I hope that you can all appreciate my uh, decision on that one. It doesn't take anything away from the conversation that myself and Dan had and as you're going to hear when we're talking legitimately and this is no blowing smoke either I got him on the phone I had never spoke to him before and it was like we were we were old friends he's just he's uh an incredible individual we had a great conversation and I really hope that that comes through uh with what you guys are going to hear but like I said before all of that we're going to take it back to Stampede Wrestling and the fateful night of the Calgary Riot. And then on the other side, my incredible conversation with Cowboy Dan Crawford. Please enjoy all of it. Out of there,
0: Terry Brown joins him in front of the ring. So busy trying with the crowd. I've never seen anything like that tell you something, Archer, the stopper Goldie, I've been playing this for a long time. You've been in your mouth that you wanted my belt, you wanted the championship from me, but you thought tagging up with me was going to make me to forget the vendetta I had for you. Put the camera over there and take a look at this man. No, no, take a, know look, know. At no, take a look at him. Take a look at his son there. I broke his neck. I crippled him. I helped the son of guns die. Look at him, Take a look at him. Look at the man
7: there. Look at him. Well, I am, uh, in a state of shock, that's all. I have never seen anything quite like this. The stopper, I don't know if you have. I've never seen anything like it. No, Ed? It was ridiculous. That kid has asked me to train him to wrestle. Since he was old enough to talk. trained them. I didn't want him to start. I didn't want him to wrestle. But he begged me and he said, Dad, I want to follow in your footsteps. I want to be a professional wrestler. I said, Okay, Jeff. He had a few match matches down in the States where he went to school. He said, Dad, I want to go up and I want to wrestle in front of my grandma and my uncles and aunts and nieces and everybody else up in my home, our home country up in western Canada. So I brought him up here and I Dad, I'm not real proud of it, bringing them up here, bringing them anywhere and starting them. I'm not real proud of it at all. I've been called a lot of things in my career since I've been a professional wrestler, but one thing that nobody can ever say is I've taken advantage of a young boy. I've wrestled young boys in the ring, but I've never taken advantage of them like that kid was taking advantage of tonight. There's a couple people involved here, Ed. One of them trained with me for several days in the gymnasium, right beside me and my son, sweating together, our own sweat. Getting ready for the big one, patting them on the back, say, kid, this is the big one, this is your chance. They him out here on the concrete floor. They just took him away in the ambulance. I'm not going to holler and scream tonight, Edward. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to the hospital and see how my kid is. And I'm going to say, Jeff, I'm sorry. You're not going to wrestle anymore. But I am. Some more. And it's time to get even. That might be the wrong thing to say in a situation right like now, or maybe a time like this. But I'm sure not going to go up and shake the man's hand that did it to my son. Yeah. And you know, we are professional wrestlers. I'm not out here crying for myself. I'm just sorry i started my son in the wrestling profession. But I'm still fine and well. And just as soon as I leave that hospital and find out my kid is okay. I'm coming back to the ring, Edward. And I don't know which one I'm going to take on first. But I'm going to put everything aside. I'm going to put all the championship belts away back in the corner, the furthest thing from my mind. I'm going to get the man that hurt my son. And I promise him, he's going to be the sorriest individual that ever put on a pair of wrestling boots or ever stepped into the squared circle.
5: Yeah, so anyway, I know you want to talk about Archie Goethe. I will bring up one point. I noticed I looked online and you had a conversation about Abdullah the Butcher. I wish I'd had an opportunity to be a part of that conversation. Uh, I I could have added a real, real interesting dimension to that conversation with regards to my career in Abdullah. But... Anyway, I, I know you want to speak
1: about Archie tonight, so. Well, no, let's let's hang on before before we get into that, because I would love to hear uh, your position on Abby, because it's you know it's one of those things like with doing the podcast, you know. Um, to really, I think I do a fairly decent job, or at least I like to. I'll put myself over and say I do a decent job of uh, of getting some, you know, in depth uh, conversation, in depth stories about these subjects that I'm covering. And unfortunately, you know, it's if I was to do. Uh, as in depth as I possibly could, my show was would run probably eight to 10 hours an episode. And I'd, I'd probably spend about a hundred hours uh, on each of them. But, uh, no, uh, by all means, like, I, I would love to hear your experiences with Abby.
5: Well, you know, it's funny. I noticed a couple like Gene Kineski. I'd worked with him a lot and had done an interview about him a number of years ago as well. But Abdullah, interesting role in my life, uh, it's funny. Most people know that Earl Maynard was the one that introduced me to Stu Hart back in 1969, which started my career, but my real break in the business. And I think I would use the analogy of an actor. Uh, there's actors who struggle to get going in life to, to climb that ladder and they'll get a break, like a great movie, like an Al Pacino might've got in the Godfather or something in his career took off. Well, if I could use that analogy in my career, uh, Abdullah ironically came into Calgary, either right around 1970, I think it was. I'm not correct, always right about the dates, but I've been working for about a year. I was a jobber, which was the right thing. I mean, I was breaking in, getting going. And Abdullah came into the territory in Calgary and he was a huge superstar at that time. He, you know, he was squashing wrestler after wrestler, and Stu Hart had him right in the main events. He was, you know, he was a headliner, and Abby, of course, would take guys. His matches never lasted long—maybe four minutes, five minutes—and he was very quick on his feet for a guy of his size. And uh, after about four or five weeks of squashing guy after guy. They had me booked against them, and of course, as I say, I was a jobber, really nobody, just a young guy, and uh, trying to work my way up the ladder, and for some reason, I'll never know why, but he was to work with me that night, and I was expecting to do a job in like three, four minutes for him, and uh, we got in the ring, and he, he started doing me in, just like he had done previous guys, and then all, all of a sudden, he Slammed me in a corner and he had a traditional move where he went back to the other corner of the ring, come running across with a flying elbow. When he slammed me in the corner, he said to me, move. And he went to the other corner and he came flying through the air. I moved. And then he said, come back, kid. So I went crazy. I, I had to <laughs> smile. I, I, I really, you know, I was, I guess I was pretty energetic. Matter of fact, I got the nickname dynamite, Dan Crawford. And I I made this huge comeback on him, which no guy previous to me had done that. And the crowd, the place, the building was packed. And the people exploded. And I drop-kicked him about four times, uh, all kinds of stuff. He scooted out the ring, and he ran away and never came back to the ring and left me
4: standing.
5: (laughs) He he took me over so big that when I, I got back to the dressing room, and I didn't expect that, he just said to me, Hey, kid you're going to be okay. And Stu Hart, I'll never forget, came up to me and in this Stu Hart tradition, he went, yeah, that bastard, he put you over, you, you made it. And right from that moment on, uh, I was a pretty popular baby face because I sort of really did something with Abdullah that nobody to that time had. So I credit him. And we've talked about it, he and I, over the years a couple of times, about the fact that he really put me over. And and that's the way the business is sometimes made. Just like, as I said, Al Pacino's movie might have been, you know, The Godfather, that put him over. Well, I would say Abdullah put me over. So, And I had many matches with him after that, and he was always extremely generous with me. And another point is Abdullah loved the gig, and he used to cut – the other guy sometimes too and never once in all our matches did he ever ask me to cut and he never cut me so uh, i have to say quite honestly he played a significant role in helping me uh, become uh, a baby face
1: that's tremendous i really i appreciate you sharing that story that's again you know doing these programs there's always you know these these um you know these untold stories, these kernels that you just you dig up and you come across. And there's, it doesn't matter if it's you know, uh, like the Kaniski episode, like you said, or or, or whatever. Like there, there's in every episode I've done, there's always something that brings us back to a, a different episode. It's just it's the more I get into it, the more fascinating it is.
5: Yeah, I think the world of wrestling was interesting. I'm sad in this day and age. I'll share with you is I see so many of the guys I work with are gone. And, you know, I'm 76 now, and, you know, I, I know, you know, we don't live forever, and over 90% of my life is gone too, but it's a sad moment when I read constantly about this guy's gone, that guy's gone, and, of course, when Archie died, I was, I was quite touched by the fact that he had died because I wish we could have spent some time together. And I remember going, I was invited to CAC in Las Vegas to speak uh, to a fairly large crowd about what I had did with my life after wrestling, talking about life after wrestling. And I was hoping Archie could be there. And then I found out that Archie was not well, either financially or physically, you know, he was living a pretty drab life and, and, Bob Leonard, who was alive at the time, shared with me that Archie just wouldn't come to those events because I I think he was somewhat embarrassed or whatever reason. But, you know, I was deeply saddened by his loss. But it's an ongoing thing. It it seems like, you know, our generation, there are so many guys that are gone now. And, uh, you know, it's sad to see this.
1: And that's another reason for, you know, doing this program is to kind of, I, I'm not gonna, you know, sit here and tell you that I'm, you know, the world's best historian. It's not true, but I feel like if I can at least do my part to kind of preserve some of this history and get some of these stories out there that are otherwise would be, you know, lost to the sands of time. I, if I can play at least that small part in this in this equation, then, then, you know, that that really makes me feel good, and that's something that I'm really excited to be able to share with everybody else.
5: Well, I'll add something to that. When I spoke in Las Vegas, I talked about the three elements of my career. And the three elements of my career were obviously the guys I worked with who put me over. I, I never thought of myself as a superstar. I was always cognizant of the fact that it was a work and it was it was working together, unified as a team. Uh, I was always a firm believer that it was about a business and that we told stories and that was a part of my agenda, was to fill the houses. And if I could find guys that would work with me, which I had the great privilege of, I never thought of myself as a great worker, uniquely big, or a great speaker. But I always thought the business was about us, not I. And and the other piece in it was I always said the fans were critical to our careers. I pointed out If the buildings were empty, we would not make any money, and who could go out and work in front of, you know, very small crowds? And so I was always appreciative of the fan support. But my third piece was that I was really appreciative of the media, of the people who told our stories, who wrote our stories, who preserved the pictures i mean really you're historians you preserve our legacies if you guys weren't telling our stories i would suggest people wouldn't even know who we were and as we passed on so would our histories so you're doing a much bigger job than maybe you realize and i i look at everybody bob leonard was a photographer he's he's been gone now a few years but he preserved so much of what we did through the photography that he did and And, I mean, Greg out of Toronto, he's at the CAC all the time. He's preserved stories. Uh, There are so many people. So I've always had a great admiration and appreciation of the media, you people who preserve our stories, you know, whether it's in written form or in picture form. And so, you know, take pride in
4: what you do, because I, I am certainly grateful for the work that you guys do
1: well i really appreciate that and uh yeah you're talking about greg oliver he does a tremendous job yeah. like him and everyone at slam wrestling they do such a great job with everything too
4: yeah
5: i, I just think that that's critical i mean they if you think about the guys who are in the business the gene kaniskis or the guys who were 40 50 years ago you know i worked with some of the greatest names in the business bruno San Martino, killer kowalski when i was in los angeles i You know, I've worked with some of the biggest names around, and and if if you, in the storytelling industry, were not preserving the names, the new generation of fans would have no idea who those people were. So, you know, whenever I get a chance, I've done interviews on YouTube, I've done interviews at at different levels, even at my age today, people talk to me, and I think, you know, this is a real honor. You're, You're preserving my history along with the history of the people I worked with. So, you know, again, uh, you know, I give you credit and take credit for what you do.
1: Well, again, I, I very much appreciate it. And, you know, naturally, the, the topic of our conversation today is somebody who maybe modern wrestling fans uh, wouldn't know otherwise, and that would be um, Archie, the Stomper Goldie. Um, just speaking about Archie, when were you first introduced to him in, uh, in Stampede? In the early 70s. And was that when he, because I'm trying to think now, did he start in the mid-60s, if I'm correct?
5: Yeah, I started in 69, but he and I didn't connect until the early 70s. I was, I, I think you probably know this, I created the ladder match. I invented that in the early 70s. And I had a bit of a reputation about angles and telling stories in the business. I, I used to, you know, talk to the promoters or talk to, I used to pick out villains that I thought I could work with. But the first thing i do with them would talk to them about how do we build the business? How do we make this into a sequel? I, I was never a believer of just one match. And when Archie and I first met, I did a, an angle with him called The Destroyer. And I laid out a four- to five-week program with him, and he he embraced it immediately. And, I, I, you know, there's so much I could tell you about, Archie, and I'm sure you've done your research on him, but uh, I, I, you don't have enough hours in a day for me to share all the <laughs> stories that I could tell you about, Archie.
1: Well, okay, I just want wanted to touch on that destroyer um, angle because that is one that people still talk about today. So... As we kind of, um, like, was that your first program with Archie then? Was the Destroyer Angle?
4: Yeah,
5: it was one of the first ones. When I sat down with Archie, I'd heard stories about him. And I should share with you, I never personally uh, experienced anything I'd ever heard. But I heard he was temperamental. He was moody. Uh, he didn't like working with certain people. He picked his shots. He was, uh, you know, he all these temperament things. Uh, things that I'd heard never once did I ever experience that with him but I, I remember talking to him and I just said to him I could care less if I wear the belt I said to me what is more important than wearing a belt which I had the North American belt maybe four or five times but I always utilized it in an angle and I told him you know I said to him I could care less about wearing the belt I said you can have it I said as long as you and I can do an angle, tell stories that the fans will appreciate and we'll fill the buildings. To me, that's what business is all about. I remember distinctly him sitting across from me in a dress room. He lit up like a Christmas tree and and said something to the effect, that's exactly how I want to do business. I knew from that moment on, that when I presented ideas to him, he would embrace them, because it was never about having my hand raised. It was more about telling a story and creating sequels. So Archie became, I would say, one of my best dancing partners, if I can use that analogy. Uh, He just was really, really on board with anything that was an angle. So when I created the, the Destroyer story, He just embraced it immediately, and I I can tell you there's a four-minute clip of him and I, you can see on YouTube that Archie and I worked, and it was a match that uh, we were going to do that the winner would meet the world champion the next week in Calgary. Uh, I think it was Harley Race, if I remember right and and archie said to me at that time he said to me you know i think you should work with harley race i said i could care less i said really archie let's go out and have a good match and you can win this in the middle of the ring and and you know that was where he and i really clicked that he saw i was about business it wasn't about ego or narcissistic you know attitude about had to win or had to look great and I can't really say enough about him. And as I say, the destroyer angle really was one of our biggest angles. And from that moment on, we just continued doing some really good business.
1: So for anybody sitting at home who who is not familiar with that angle, essentially how it played out, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you both had a match. Uh, He essentially, you know, kind of crushed you. I think he... uh, He came out saying that he ended your career, that you had brain damage or whatever. You took some time off. I think it was, you took a couple of weeks off and then you came back under a mask as the destroyer. So the fans had no idea who you were. This brand new, you know, uh, baby face to go against Archie Goldie, who just, you know, he just, he took out our guy. Now here's this, you know, this masked Avenger, if you will, to come back, the destroyer. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, that, angle was it several weeks and it was it sold out buildings uh, left right and center
5: yeah to put a little more detail on it uh, when i laid it out to him at which you know it was rather interesting because even Stu hart was kind of surprised that i was willing to do this but i had had a young fan who was standing it came in the ring i introduced this young fan into the ring And, and, uh, you know, brought him up and Archie Goldie was going to beat this kid up. And it set the the stage where I was going to defend this local young boy who was a fan. And so the conversation started at that. And then when we finally had a match, him and I, I told him, I said, you're going to literally destroy me, but I want you to do this. We're not actually going to have the match. I'm going to be doing an interview with a suit on. And what I want you to do is jump in the ring, clobber me and literally knock me out and rip the suit off me so that people see you rip off a suit because no one had ever done that before in the ring where somebody ripped off their suit, the sports jacket, their shirt, everything. It was a unique perspective to see a wrestler demolished in the ring and all his clothes ripped off him except his pants. And I would lay there, and they would take me out in a stretcher. Then Ed Whalen would announce that due to brain damage, uh, my career was over. Archie jumped in the ring and was laughing. And he (laughs) he went on to say that he destroyed my career, and it was rightfully so. I knew that would build the hostility in the fans' minds to see that on television. And the kid was supposed to be crying. The young boy was crying because this had happened to me. And then I told Stu, I want to take two weeks off, but you announced the next week with no reference to me that there was a wrestler coming. And at that time, there was a wrestler, uh, uh, the Destroyer, who is well-known throughout the United States. Yes. So I borrowed him as a copy. The people would think, okay, this guy's coming. They know all about the Destroyer. This is a world-renowned wrestler. So what I did is I waited a couple of weeks, and then Archie was booked against the Destroyer. But to fool the fans, what I did was I not only wore a mask, but uh, inside my outfit that I had on, I put on heavier clothing to make myself look like 20, 30 pounds heavier and and that way. And then when I got in the ring with Archie and, and we got into a battle, I immediately took over. And I took him down, and then I stepped across his throat after pounding on him for a while, and I slowly took off my clothes, and then I left my mask off. I I think the sound in the hall, the building, was deafening. And from that moment on, we took that match all over. Then we moved it to the big building from, from the pavilion. The next week, we booked it in to the next building, which was much, much bigger, three times bigger. We sold that out. Stu said he turned away, he thinks around 7,000 people were turned away from that arena. And we took it all over Western Canada and sold it out everywhere. Archie, from that moment on, obviously, he became a partner in ideas. So whenever I was able to sit down with him and talk to him. And the other thing that emerged from that, which was really a compliment... I had other heels that came to me and, you know, said, hey, I'd love to work with you. You know, what is it? You got any ideas? So when I worked with Tora Commander and I created the ladder match and other matches for them, sort of earned their respect and and it was a critical piece because it elevated me into the main events. I was making a better living and I was able to go to other territories and do relatively well. Of course, Los Angeles became a... A high point for me, you know, having the belt there and working with Seiji Sakaguchi and working in a 20-man battle role with Bruno Martino and some of the biggest names. So really, I, I think what elevated my career was creating angles. I recognized early sitting in the dressing room. I looked around the room. These guys were a lot bigger than me. I was 6 feet, about 230. But there was guys, you know, massive physiques, good-looking guys, good talkers, so I had to find a way to you know protect my career, create longevity. And it was angles for me. Telling stories was the way to do that. So from my perspective, working with Archie, he was a perfect fit for telling stories.
1: I've always uh, read articles, read interviews, heard other interviews uh, regarding Archie that he was very much like the thinking man's wrestler. He was always planning, that next match. He was always planning that next story. So hearing you back that exact information up is, is fascinating.
4: Yeah, he
5: was great that way. I had guys say to me and, and Stu Hart even shared with me that Archie could be temperamental and that, you know, he wouldn't work with certain guys, but he and I, funny enough, were on the same page about certain types of wrestlers. (coughs) Excuse me. There were some wrestlers in the business and I don't think I need to Use their names, but some of them were bullies. There were some guys who were not cooperative. they Their, you know, their narcissistic attitudes and personalities made it very hard to work with them. Archie had no time for those guys. I know of two or three guys he refused to work with because, you know, maybe they were shooters. Uh, they were, you know, hard to work with. They weren't cooperative in the ring, and Archie just. He shied away from that. I, I remember on several occasions, he and I talked about the fact that this was a business and that filling the seats, filling the buildings increased our paydays and it elevated our presence in the business. So to me, it made common sense and to him as well. But, you know, I always enjoyed his, his, his time with him. I, I just, I can't say enough about the guy. For me personally, you know, he was like finding a dance partner, we just, him and I, we danced to the music. He was great.
1: So naturally, you worked with him quite a bit in Stampede. Were you able to work with him outside of that territory as well?
5: No, funny enough you say that because I know he worked in other places, as the mongrel and other territories. Yes. I was in Louisiana. You know, I was in the deep south, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, all those areas, and, and he was in other areas in, in the U.S. Then I was in Los Angeles or I was working Portland, I was working Vancouver, but Archie and I just never connected outside of Calgary. It was almost a natural fit. Ironically, I think Calgary was our best place to work. He and I were sort of, if you were to think of Hollywood as the place to make movies, I would say that Calgary was the place for he and I to work because the chemistry, I was very fortunate to be over as a babyface, and he was probably the premier heel at the time. I still think today that Archie was one of the greatest heels that Stampede Wrestling ever had.
1: I I would say that he's easily the greatest homegrown heel that they ever had. Like yeah, sure they brought in a lot of, of great import heels like you know we were talking about Abdullah just previously but like he like he built himself in Stampede. He was he was the like like he was the prototype for a homegrown heel. He just did so much for himself there.
5: Yeah, I would have said what made him as good as he was, I would have said with his physical physique and his speaking ability and his believable work, he was a solid worker, that he would have been a, a WWE superstar even in today's world. And those are two different worlds. Like, you know, the world of WWE today, You know, you look at the the physiques of the guys and and the type of work they do and the stories, and you look at our time, it was a total different time. Uh, You know, I'm the first one to admit that I may not have made it in the WWE. I may have got in the door if I could have convinced Vince that I was an idea guy. I was talking, you know, about filling the buildings and shooting angles. But from a physical and working perspective, I don't think I had what it took to be a WWE worker. And I think, to be quite honest with you, a lot of the guys in the business during my era, physically or from a working perspective, would have never made it in the WWE. It was a a different time. But I think Archie had the capacity to be a WWE worker Uh, at any time and uh, that really speaks
4: volumes to, to his ability i believe
1: when i was doing my research for this program and we had talked about slam wrestling before i had come across an article that you had written in regards to uh rg once he had passed away and you had a line in here that i wanted to circle back to because it kind of encapsulated what you just spoke about so in the article you had written he should have been a bigger star it's like a guy who played in the CFL who could have played on any team in the NFL, but he stayed in Canadian football. I don't think Archie ever reached the limits. And to to your point, he almost could have been, he could have been the biggest heel. I don't want to say in the world, but certainly in North America. Why do you think he made the choice to not make the jump to a larger promotion?
5: Yeah, I'm not sure. I can't answer that. You know, sometimes in life. Things lie within that individual's decision-making, and maybe he didn't ever share it. or I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I can't speak to that. But the, the interesting thing about Archie was when I had heard that he ended up in the U.S. working in the sheriff's department and that, and, you know, I, I often wondered what would become of him. So many of us in the business, this is, this is a piece that doesn't get talked about a lot. But many of the greatest names in the business in retirement find some of the greatest failure. And I don't mean that in a mean way. I mean it from a point of observation. It's that We get so caught up in the world, and that's one of the speaking points that I tried to address when I went to Vegas and I've spoken at other outlets, is talking about creating a second career, finding yourself, uh, reinventing yourself after wrestling is a lot of the guys are not prepared for that, you know, after. And not to, you know, not to avoid your question regarding why he didn't step up, but I noticed that where he went after his career often led me to wonder if Archie was prepared for retirement or how long did he feel he could work. A lot of the guys worked far too long, in my opinion there's guys in the WWE who I think could have retired sooner or should have retired sooner. Uh, You know, their appearance and their quality of work declined. Uh, But, you know, I talked about that on numerous occasions about creating a career. I got very involved with community work. I do volunteer work. I'm on different committees. I do fundraising. I do charity work. It, It really comes down to one sentence, finding purpose in life. So quite often I've now, in my time, I look back on a lot of the guys who were superstars in the business, you know, and I spent time with Jake the Snake in 2011, I've talked to a lot of the guys, you know, the difficulty of transition, when they're finished their careers, we're so caught up in the world of wrestling, we're not prepared for that transition, you know, to find that second career and be prepared, and Erchie, I, I always wondered if, you know, I wish I would have known if he was happy at what he was doing when he retired. I, I know he ended up almost penniless, living in a basement suite and not healthy, and, you know, that really broke my heart, and I wish I could have talked to him, you know, earlier in life, and maybe we would have been able to find a better, a better exit plan for him, you know, so... I'm always saddened by that. I I see so many of the guys from the business who, you know, Bret Hart and I, as an example, talk quite often, and he's done well. And, you know, I'm happy for him, and I'm happy for a lot of the guys that have done well. they found careers after wrestling. But as you know, a guy who follows the industry so closely, there are a lot of sad stories out there.
1: You, You know, speaking about Archie specifically, then I want to bring up another point after this, but... It was it was so sad to read, uh, when he had passed in you know the the poor condition that he was health wise because, you know, going through my research and reading about him, the fact that he would he would do things like he would bike you know sixty miles or whatever to uh, to his next booking or whatever he would he was just he was always in top physical, um, shape I guess you could say for lack of a better term you wouldn't know it looking at him physically because he didn't have the you know Hulk Hogan 24-inch pythons whatever any of that nonsense but you can you can look at him and he looked like an athlete he looked like yeah. he he looked like somebody who took himself uh his profession and his uh physical fitness very very seriously and and the more stories I've read about you know, like he, like I said, he even working as a sheriff. If I'm not mistaken, he still didn't have a car. He would still ride his bike to uh, the sh- the uh, sheriff's office as well every day. It's just you read stories like that about this man who was just so committed to uh, keeping himself in, in such fantastic shape. To unfortunately pass the way he did is is really heartbreaking.
5: Yeah, sometimes genetics play a role too—a hereditary thing. But, you know, it's funny. Archie and I, we would do 200 push-ups, as an example, before a match. we do it for fun. I did it always, you know, or 200 squats and that, just warming yeah. up before <laughs>
4: matches.
5: But he would do them, and I would do them like every night, like I was always doing it. And he would as well. And we'd talk about that, you know, like he was always running or doing something. He was in much better shape than I was. You know, I had an athletic background, I, you know, i had a shot at pro baseball i swam you know I, I did a lot of athletics but i was never as intently committed to health as he was archie was absolutely and i think that was part of his persona too you know if you look at his interview standing in the ring he projected as a guy who was capable of what he was saying he was doing and his face you know his facials were amazing like he you know with quite often he'd almost scare me I, I'd watch him do an interview how he said he was going to rip me apart and I thought thank god this is a work
4: <laughs>
5: because if, if this is real I'm getting out of town you know and we'd laugh and joke about that quite often I mean he you know I just I have so many fond memories of him as I do of so many of the heels I work with you know and you know, I think back of my time sitting with Gene Kaniski in the dressing room. We worked for the Pacific Coast Championship, him and I, numerous times. Or Abdul the Butcher, or Tora and you know, the list goes on and on. And, you know, you 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 have so many great memories of working with these guys. But Archie, in particular, I guess that, you know, if a movie star had a particular guy that he liked working with, uh, I think of Burt Lancaster, who may have worked with Kurt Douglas a lot of times. He may have said Kurt Douglas was his favorite guy to work with. You know, I don't know that, but I'm just assuming. I would say that Archie Goldie was right up there and is probably one of my favorite guys to work with.
1: The other uh, point that I wanted to make and that something that you brought up is, is the the lack or seeming lack of the exit plan in professional wrestling. And, you know, it, that's the, one of the comparisons I think that you can draw between uh, wrestlers of previous generations and it still continues today is unfortunately it's, it's the, when you're in the moment, you're so caught up in, in being that person, you're, you're being that wrestler, that superstar that you kind of don't think about okay, what's next after this? And you still unfortunately see it today uh, of wrestlers who once once they're out, that's it, and they're, they're left kind of twisting in the wind and they don't know what to do with themselves after.
5: Yeah, preparation for departure is such an important decision-making role. I used to talk about wrestling. I remember even young saying that wrestling is like a porthole in a ship. It's not a picture window. It's an opportunity, and if you look, you can use comparables, other pro sports, whether it's football or baseball, any pro sport. An athlete could be at the top of his game for four, five, six, seven years, eight years. All you need is one injury or a decline in your your ability, and all of a sudden you're traded, and all of a sudden you're cut. Now, are you prepared at 40 years old? 35 or whatever age it is are you prepared for that next stage of your life and i was always cognizant of that i used to talk to guys about financial planning it's funny if they were here today still alive they would tell you about conversations we had i used to talk to the davy boy smith and dynamite kid you know i had dynamite's one of his first matches in calgary when he came he was only like 170 pounds And I remember talking to those guys in the dressing room. I was buying real estate and and talking about financial planning and uh, you know, these guys were making eight hundred thousand dollars a year with WWE and my last show was in nineteen eighty five in the saddle dome. We had twenty two thousand people there and I remember sitting in the dressing room with dynamite and Davy Boy and, uh, you know, I talked to them about, you know, have you guys made financial plans, you know, to exit the business and that, you know, and there was a lot of smiling and laughing. But unfortunately, a lot of guys don't see the finish line. You know, you're at the peak of your height. And, you know, there was another term that used to be said all the time, and I wouldn't single out anybody, but a lot of guys used to believe their own publicity you know, you're, you're a superstar, you're the greatest, you're this and that. But the one thing we forget about wrestling is it's a work, it's a business, and it's not for real. It's entertainment, and you're an entertainer, and you have to see yourself in that light. And the publicity you get, you know, whether it's by people in the media like yourself or written stories or how high they promote you in the card. That's all because it's staged, it, it's a performance. It's not like you're a great Olympian and, and you've won all the gold medals. That's a different type of achievement. This is an industry where we're made or, or our careers could end so quickly. So, you know, if you were fortunate enough to make a lot of money in the business, which I wasn't, you know, I was never made the big money like WWE. I, I was fortunate after the business in investments and other things that worked for me. But I used to talk all the time to the boys, guys that would listen, to say, you know, think about financial planning. Think about a second career when you leave the industry. And for me personally, you know, even at 76, I'm still engaged in the community. I'm on several committees. I do fundraising. I run charities like golf tournaments and and help different organizations. It gives you purpose, but it also gives you something else. It gives you self-worth it gives you a sense of well-being you're a part of the community you feel like and i know so many guys recede into sort of an empty world they don't know what to do next and you know it's it's sad and i wish sometimes i wish there was ways that we could convey a message and help individuals you know i'd be the first one to say if there's a guy out there who's been at the top of the game but today they're you know, they suffer from depression or loneliness and they're not being able to find themselves, I'd be happy to, you know, talk to them and give them some help in regards to finding direction because I think that's a missing part of our business where we don't have people out there supporting guys after the business. It's, you know, I I know Vince runs a big business and, excuse me, you know i don't know how much follow-up
1: vince does with guys after they retire you know yeah that's uh that's an excellent point you make it's almost you know when you're out is there anybody really looking out for you then at that point or you know you're almost kind of left to your own devices and like you put it perfectly if you don't if you don't plan for it if you don't have that that exit strategy man it's uh It's a a rude world out there once you're out of the spotlight.
5: Yeah, you know, another piece, too, again, without mentioning names, I went to CAC a couple of times, and I found myself rather kind of depressed. I saw guys sitting at tables, you know, selling signatures and, you know, pictures and photographs, and they sit there all all day. They were superstars from 20, 30 years ago. And, you know, I talk to some of them, you know, on the side, and I say, how are you doing? And, you know, they're struggling either with health issues or or they're living on some sort of assistance, social assistance, or what have you, and they go to these signing shows to make up loose ends, you know, get what they can when they can. And that breaks my heart, really, to see that. I know the fans are engaged they're excited to see the ex-superstars there, but there's another layer to the individuals that maybe the fans are not aware of a lot of guys are struggling either psychologically emotionally or financially and that's a sad that's a sad case i you know if if there was any way of engagement to help people who are living in loneliness or, or struggling you know after the business because we all sort of fade into our own places in life uh, you know wrestlers end up living all over the place we don't I see Bret Hart periodically, but as I say, he's been extremely successful. And, and we've shared many of the stories, he and I, quite often about the guys who have fallen through the cracks. And, you know, you somehow, sometimes you want to reach out and help, but
1: of course they're so far away, it's it's difficult to stay in touch. Well, and especially in, in you know, Archie's case, because it, you know, he ended up being, I believe it was in Knoxville, um is where he ended up having his residence and then he was working um you know out of the sheriff's office but man that's a long way from calgary and and that's a long way from you know the the group of people that you you know kind of came up with throughout the years and you know it's one thing to be on the phone and talk to somebody and whatever but if if they're you know a few thousand kilometers away. I'm not sure what the drive is from Calgary to uh, um, Knoxville or Kentucky or anything, but I don't, I don't imagine it's a, it's a quick one, but yeah, it's tough. If, if you're away from that support system, if you're away from the people who, you know, you came up with and and who know you and who are, would be available to support you and you don't have that, it's, yeah, that's a tough go.
5: I'm wondering, I I would, Maybe someday somebody will create a fraternity, you know, guys, a retirement group that you can stay in touch. It's kind of like, this may be a, not a great analogy, but Alcoholics Anonymous set up groups. <laughs> you,
4: know,
5: you, can, you can phone and talk to each other if you're struggling. And I've, I've often wondered if, if somebody could, you know, take the reins on that and set up a group of wrestlers to where, because with our modern technology like Zoom, and other forms of technology that we have today, we can be closer in touch with each other, and you know, set up conversations where if you're having a bad day, you know, you're not feeling that well, and you need to talk to somebody. That you've got a, a host of individuals who are understand where you're where you're from and where you're going and what you're going through. And it, I think it'd be an ideal idea. My hopes were that when I spoke at uh, you know, I spoke at uh, CAC. That, you know, the message I conveyed was about there is hope after the business. You just have to find yourself. You have to find your feet and and acknowledge what your capacities are, what you can't do and what you can't do and get involved with organizations and join groups. And, you know, but it's hard to really reach out just in, you know, in one session like that. So... I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have the answers. As I say, I, I'm saddened to see all the guys that are gone. Uh, you know, it seems like every week I, I read about another guy who's passed along that I may have worked with somewhere. And uh, But on the other side of it, I, I wish there was some way that we could have stayed in touch. And like you say, Knoxville was a long ways from Calgary. But uh, I would love to have, you know, I even offered to pay for Archie's trip to CAC when I talked to Bob Leonard. I said I'd pay his ticket, but uh, he just said he wouldn't come. Like a matter of pride, and I think he was embarrassed. And, and that was unfortunate. You know, I was deeply saddened to hear that.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, naturally the, the... – End result of of what happened with Archie is heartbreaking, like we've said multiple times. Um, but it is a part of the story, and it's it is something that we need to, you know, discuss and talk about. And it is uncomfortable, and nobody, you know, it's it's not something that anybody really likes to talk about. But it is uh, it's it's the fact of what happened, and it's it's worthy of discussion at least. But I like your point there that you know maybe it was a source of or a matter of pride that he wouldn't, you know, reach out and ask for help. Um, maybe that's kind of in line with you know the pride that he had, you know, like we said, you know, keeping up in f- top physical form and and the pride he had, you know, being champion and things of that nature. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's all just a microcosm of itself.
5: Yeah, I think that happens in all industries. There's people in the movie industry who have great careers, and then all of a sudden they're pumping gas again, or there's great athletes. You know, I I think of Lenny Dystra, Dystra, a a baseball player, whose story just collapsed. Uh, There are so many stories out there of guys who have been at the top of the world, and we can go on and on with names of people like that, and then they disappear, you know, into the public, because, you know, I think I met Pete Rose once, and, you know, I almost came to tears meeting Pete Rose and you know one of the greatest baseball players at baseball was actually my first choice, his career. I had a chance for the Pittsburgh Pirates and so I had this affection for baseball. So meeting Pete Rose, but to see Pete Rose in his later years, you know with his dyed hair and overweight and sitting there talking to him, it, it was it was in some ways a mistake. I had this image of him, you know Charlie Hustle, and and now i'm sitting in front of a depleted man whose reputation and i think that you know in the world of sports and entertainment you're going to have the tragedies quite often and and they're sad hopefully you know maybe we can learn from them maybe new and young athletes and people can see that and not make the mistakes that many of us have made previously but it's the society we live in archie wasn't a perfect guy you know, that's another thing that we have to examine and be honest about. Human beings generally are faulted. I mean, and I put myself at the top of the list. I've made mistakes in life and done things that I regret. The key to regrets is never doing them again. If you've made a mistake, don't repeat it. And then you've learned from it. You know, but quite often, there's, you know, whether it's drugs or alcoholism or, or, or divorces because of all the things that went on in the world of wrestling. I mean, there's a lot of faults to our business and there's a lot of faulty guys, but I'd like to remember Archie and guys like him for what they did for the business and what they did for me. You know, they they catapulted my my career to a better place and I'm grateful for that. So I'd like to remember Archie and, and other guys that I worked with rather Seeing the glass half empty I'd like to remember them as a glass more than half full you
1: know so in keeping with that and we can leave the fans with the uh the glass half full aspect of this conversation is there another uh is there another fun Archie story that you'd like to share with the listeners
5: I'm sorry what was that I
1: missed it oh sorry um just in keeping with the glass half full option as we uh wind up this portion of the program is there another fun Archie story that you'd like to share with the listeners
5: you know, I, I really can't, I, I don't think I can make you laugh or make your listeners laugh. I can just tell you that I would sum up Archie as a dedicated, committed, 100% involved guy in a business, and he gave 100% to the business. He, he was truly, you know, he was an asset to the business. He was an asset to us. Uh, I had the privilege and good fortune of, Being in a time frame with a guy of his quality, uh, I think my friendship with him, I cherish. Uh, I think it's more of a personal observation than telling you a story about anything unique about him outside the business. Because as I say, my career was always involved with him at a level of of the career. We didn't socialize. I can't think of many times ever that he and I did any socializing because of course of K Fave, but uh, I, I would just say he was as good as it gets. I'll borrow a, a Jack Nicholson movie uh, as good as it gets. Archie was as good as it gets, and uh, I truly miss him.
1: Couldn't say it better myself. Uh, so before I let you go, Dan, is, is there, I know you're obviously involved in, in a great deal of charities and, and you were mentioning some of the work that you're doing, what are you up to right now outside of, uh, in Alberta and, uh, and what's going on with yourself personally right now?
5: Well, you know what, trying to stay healthy, that's one of the primaries, uh, of course, dealing with a couple of health issues, but the, the good fortune is that the health issues are manageable in most cases and I'm fortunate enough to be able to be managing mine. But my involvement in the community is really another pinnacle in my life, is I I can't begin to tell people, if someone said to me, what is the best decision you can make when you retire one day, is community involvement, I would suggest. I worked with Rotary, I worked with the Lions, I worked with Kiwanis, I worked with the Chamber of Commerce. I run a golf tournament for a mayor here in town. We raise money to build a senior center. Uh, we work with the Boys and Girls Club. I raise money for them. I raised money for the girl guides. Uh, I help, I created a poppy box that was theft-proof about four years ago, working with our veterans throughout Canada. Uh, so I could tell you that I'm totally involved, and I would pass that message along that there's nothing more than fulfilling than when you give to others. The reward is not in a monetary way, but it's in an emotional way. And I've been very fortunate to be well rewarded.
1: And if people were looking to get in contact with you, how could they go about that?
5: Uh, Gosh, I'm not too sure. What is the best way? Is there sort of a good formula for that? Well,
1: (laughs) Well, you're on Facebook, of course. That's how I ended up finding you.
5: Yeah, I'm on Facebook, and I'm pretty easy. I'm receptive. I get a lot of fan comments there. Uh, I'm also. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, I'm not too sure how. else. Uh, everybody seems to get a hold of me through Facebook. And
4: <laughs>
5: if, if they want to do that, I, I welcome that. Absolutely. You know, I appreciate any comments. And uh, so, I'm not sure what to what to tell you with the process. I, I don't probably not giving out my telephone number. Yeah, to my wife.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is not going to be available in the show notes tonight.
5: No, my wife wouldn't appreciate that at uh, all. <laughs> I will say this, though, to the fans. I'd like to say this. I appreciate your support over the years. Without you, I would have not had a career. And number two, whenever I'm stopped in the community, which still happens today, which really amazes me, I've always got time to talk, sign an autograph, and, and listen to the stories. I love the reminders that many of them tell me. They actually bring things up that I forgot. So I do appreciate seeing the fans, and I appreciate their support.
1: Perfect. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, this was a, a, a tremendous conversation, and we got into a lot of topics that I never I never thought we would, so I, I really do appreciate that.
5: Yeah, well, I appreciate the time that you've given me and being a part of your
1: program. Thank you very much. As we head to the finish of tonight's program, I really wanted to take some time to thank my guests, uh, Bo James, Keith McCoy, and Cowboy Dan Crawford. Uh, Without the three of you, this episode would not have come together. So I cannot thank the three of you enough for your contributions to this episode and legitimately spending hours of each of your lives uh, talking with little old me from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Uh, It truly means a lot, and I think it added a lot to the uh, Archie the Stomper story. Now, I'm sure that everybody understood throughout the course of this program, you know, kind of the meteoric rise and the sad end to uh, Archie's story. And we didn't really cover the way that he passed. And it's, um, I know it's not nice to talk about, but I have kind of a personal connection to the way that he had passed away. So you can read about it online. I'm not going to go too, too deep into it. But essentially, uh, he had been having some Alzheimer's uh, issues. Uh, he was in assisted living. He had a, a bad fall. He had hip surgery and uh, and ended up passing away due to complications from such. Uh, why that's personal to me? Whew, um. So Archie Goldie passed away in uh, 2016. Uh, the year previous to that uh, was the year that my wife and myself had got married. We got married in October of uh, of 2015. In the spring of that year, uh, my papa, a man who I very much looked up to um, throughout my entire life, uh, he was developing you know uh, we never got it diagnosed but we had figured dementia or something like that he was having issues we're gonna say and uh, he was living with my Nana and uh, unfortunately he had a bad fall and uh, he broke his hip uh, wound up in the hospital Uh, we had all gone as a family to uh, see him Wish him well. The next morning he was supposed to be going in for surgery. Uh, everything was on the up and up. He was in pretty good spirits. We, you know, we were all in the room talking to him, laughing. You know, we gave him, you know, we all gave him a hug and kiss. I, you know, I gave him a hug, said love you. All that kind of good stuff. And uh, unfortunately, he uh, didn't make it through the night. And when I had heard how Archie Goldie had passed away, it, uh, you know, it's a year later, it really brought me back to that. And then uh, just the further part that, you know, a lot of the community didn't know that he had passed away in, I'm talking about the community in Alberta, specifically didn't know. I hope that this program at least gives some people that uh, feel good moment about you know, seeing Archie, or maybe you're reliving some past memories of him, whatever you get out of it. Uh, as usual, that's the whole purpose of this program. So I didn't, I didn't, it was not my intention to get all sappy on you guys, but I just wanted to share that little bit of uh, of my past with you all. I think it's a little bit pertinent in uh, this conversation, at least. Now, with all that being said, we still have a few things to get through uh, towards the end of this program. So Uh, First off, uh, once again, thank you all for joining the program tonight. You could have been doing anything else in the world, but you decided to throw on a few hours of uh, Grappling with Canada covering Archie the Stomper Goalie, so thank you very much for that. Uh, Do me a favor, pass the program on to your friends, to your family, uh, to people who like history or human interest stories or Canadian history, whatever. Pass it along. Uh, Grappling with Canada, as everybody knows, is not really a... Wrestling program, and I'm still trying to break the stigma of that a little bit. It's getting there, but with your guys' help, we're going to get exactly where we need to be. So, thank you very much for listening to the program tonight, and feel free, please, (laughs) to pass it on to your friends and family. Now, at the start of this program, I teased a new project that I was privy to, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that right now. So, I was Emailed from Sarah. She lives in Scotland, I believe, and she had heard a story about one of the previous topics of grappling with Canada, Billy Two Rivers. Uh, This was years ago and started doing a little bit of research into him and what came up but my conversation with Mr. Two Rivers himself, uh, which her and her friends have listened to multiple times. Fun fact, that Sarah is an artist and she is also a screenwriter. So she actually had written a screenplay, it's like a 10 minute short I believe is what it actually is, Uh, featuring a story regarding Billy Two Rivers, which I thought was pretty damn cool considering, you know, somebody from Scotland hears... You know my program, and that kind of gets the ball rolling for them writing a a short film script. So very very cool. Uh, as I get more details on that, clearly I will let everybody know. Uh, she was very gracious enough to send me the script, uh, which I read. It's super fun, and it's it's set in it's set in the proper time period. And I'm not going to go too far into it because I don't want to spoil anything, but I loved it. I thought it was a super neat idea, and I'm really looking forward to where she goes with it. So uh, Sarah, if you're listening, uh, again, I've, already spo- I've emailed you multiple times. We've been talking back and forth, but I'm really, really excited for where you take uh, this program specifically in the future. Now, the other thing that I teased at the top of the program is talking about a few five-star reviews that we were left. Uh, so, on Good Pods, we were left a five-star review on our Abdullah the Butcher episode. So, this comes from LG, who says, uh, Five-star review, I've listened to this episode multiple times now. Wow, what a crazy story. And I can't get over that intro scene. Craziness, I highly recommend Well, thank you, LG. I really appreciate you leaving the five-star review. I also got another five-star review from BC Hunter as well, also on Good Pods. Uh, He says, five-star review. The taxman is quickly becoming one of Canada's best wrestling historians thanks to the work he puts into every episode. Well, I don't know that I would put myself over that much. But BC, I really appreciate that. And speaking of BC, uh, he has a podcast along with a good friend of his, they are called wrestling with the truth podcast. There are a couple of guys from the East coast. Uh, they focus mostly on the modern programming of professional wrestling. Uh, modern wrestling is not necessarily my scene. However, I love listening to those guys show they make it a ton of fun, a ton of, you know, they, they bring up interesting topics. Uh, my favorite episode so far is they had a top 10 wrestling belts of all time. I'm a huge belt guy, so I really enjoyed that. And they just had recently, at the time of this recording, had released an episode on the top 10 worst <laughs> entrance theme musics of all time for uh, professional wrestlers. So, uh, great listen. Definitely want to plug in uh, Wrestling With The Truth on any podcast platform, like the one that you are currently listening to me Uh, right now on. As we really start to wrap this thing up, I want to thank, once again, everybody for listening to the program. Uh, You can check us out on our Facebook group. Uh, Use that Facebook group search bar, search Grappling with Canada. You can find us on there. I want to make mention as well, in regards to the Facebook group, a week before the next month's episode is going to be released. I always drop what the episode is going to be on and that gives you an opportunity if you would like to ask any questions in regards to that topic. So go ahead and join the Facebook group. It's it's uh, a good conversation and we had talked earlier on in this episode about the sledgehammer incident regarding Archie the Stomper Goldie. Uh, I'm going to be posting Video of that sledgehammer incident in the Facebook group page a few days after this episode drops, as the kids say. So come on to the uh, Facebook group page, use that wonderful search bar, Grappling with Canada, come join the group. Also use the uh, Facebook page search bar, search for Grappling with Canada, and come like the Facebook page. Again, want to mention grapplingwithcanada.threadless.com is where you can find the current four designs for the grappling with Canada shirts and once again if you pick up a shirt all the proceeds are going to charity namely the Children's Hospital here in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Also if you are willing to uh, buy the taxman a beer because, goddamn, it's hard putting these shows together. Uh, I would appreciate that. You can go ahead and head on over to uh, buymeacoffee.com slash grappling. Uh, where you can buy your wonderful pal, The tax man, a beer. It is thirsty work recording these programs. But uh, that's how you can support me. Hey, listen, I love doing this show. It's, it's a passion of mine. I'm not doing this to make money or or anything like that I'm just doing it because this is stuff that I think that that not just Canadian wrestling fans but people who enjoy personal stories people who enjoy history people who enjoy like human interest um avenues this is for you so I hope that you enjoy it if you want to buy me a beer go ahead it's it's just one of those things right but Goddamn, I'm having so much fun doing this. I hope it translates for you guys, and I hope that you're really enjoying it as well. So, with all of my rambling out of the way, and before we finish up, specifically, uh, if you want to get in touch with me, super easy, on Twitter, at 6 underscore podcast, on Instagram, uh, you can search Grappling with Canada on YouTube, youtube youtube.com slash C slash C. Six sided podcast, or you can straight up email me six side at gmail.com. Shoot me a line, let me know what you think. Uh, it I really do appreciate it. I've been getting a ton of emails, like I said at the start of the program. I've been getting a ton of emails, ton of DMs. I love it. I love talking to everybody, I love I love just conversations, and uh, it makes the whole thing worthwhile. So, huh. I think we're all done with the plugs tonight, but for myself, the tax man, for all of my tremendous guests that I had today, and I really hope that you all enjoyed them. By the way, if you haven't picked it up, pick up Pain and Passion, the Calgary Stampede Bible available on Amazon for my guests, and to all of you, I will leave you as I usually do, take care of yourselves and each other.